The following has been brought to you by SJP World Media. You people, you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. This is where the big boys play, huh? Look at the adjective. Play. Self-high five. Woo! We've been hanging and banging, brother. You're next. Watch Real Monsters go at it live on WCW Monday Nitro, where the big boys play every Monday night at 8 on TNT. Hello and welcome to a special bonus episode of Nitro Nights, a WCW Look Back podcast, proudly brought to you by the SJP World Media Network. My name is Sai, and joining me as always in this special bonus additional episodes that I, for one, am incredibly excited to be recording and bringing to you all. Joining me as always is the wrestling encyclopedia himself, Scottish Danny. Danny, how are we doing, my friend? Doing really well, thank you, mate. How's yourself? Not too bad, mate. Not too bad. Aside from a nasty cough that has come on in the last day or two, which you've obviously just experienced pre-recording. I think I blasted into your eardrums with a random cough through the microphone, which I apologise for. But uh... <laughs> that was all cool, mate. I'm just really excited to be here, where we'll be talking about our special episode. Exactly, exactly. Uh, for anyone who has not listened to Nitro Nights before, or perhaps you've listened to a couple and you're coming back for this bonus episode or whatever, a little bit of background about the show. Danny and I started this project roughly a year ago, give or take a week or two, and we decided we were going to look at WCW from the very first episode of Nitro in September 1995, running right the way through until the company closed its doors in 2001. During that time, we are going to take in pretty much every show they put on. So, in order, we're going to be watching the Nitros, the Thunders when they begin, the Clash of Champions, the pay-per-views, and so on. But we've also kind of, as well as reviewing the episodes week by week, 
and now you know we're up to a certain point which is quite a, a historic moment i guess in our timeline of looking back on those to be we've dropped the odd bonus episode here and there looking at random saturday night events uh, and so on we decided we were going to do an additional one now because we have a few people who are who, who follow the show on twitter who listen to the show on a weekly basis who quite similar to danny have not seen a great deal of wcw before and a lot of what they're taking in now is for the first time as they follow along with the podcast which is you know from my standpoint fantastic and they have numerous questions about the nwo and and so on and the the, the excitement of that time having not maybe lived through it themselves so that's why we've kind of got to this point now where danny and i decided to do this this bonus episode of the show which will coincide with the release of our bash at the beach 1996 review which is out the same day as this bonus podcast so please make sure you go and check that out via sjp world media on all your podcast platforms uh with regards to reviewing each episode of nitro and each pay-per-view that's exactly what we do and we dive in a little bit to certain things that are going on backstage and so on however with regards to bash at the beach 96 and the build-up to that and the whole nwo situation the outsiders the invasion however you want to word it there was so much going on behind the scenes we decided to save the majority of it for a special talk just about that subject rather than watering down our our weekly look back podcasts danny didn't we Absolutely, mate. And I think it's, it's, you have to give Sayo the credit here because it was his idea about this. Um, and I think it's really cool because now we can kind of just get right into the weeds and talk about what was going on. Yeah, I want to give a special shout out actually to a friend of the show at Total Stevo on Twitter. He's not watched any WCW or what he has seen. Apologies. He has seen, he has seen some, but what he has seen, he's not a fan of. And he's quite openly stated sometimes on Twitter and so on. He he doesn't get why I love this company so much, and I appreciate that. You know, it's you know, it's horses for courses, isn't it? Wrestling is a buffet. If it, you know, if we all liked the same thing, it would be a very boring world. But he's Stevo has been very interested with the NWO and why it was such a big deal historically and so on. And it was just a conversation with Stevo. I don't know if it was on Twitter or via the DMs or whatever. I'm fairly certain it was on the Twitter uh, account at Nitro underscore Nights. It's kind of where I threw the idea out there. Maybe we'll take a look at a special NWO episode to talk about what goes on and why this happened and so on. And Steve-O was like, yeah, do it. That'd be fantastic. So that's kind of where it came from, to be fair. So I've got to give a, a special mention to our good buddy Steve-O, who you know, is probably equally responsible for this recording happening, Danny. Absolutely, mate. He's always a legend. He is indeed. He is indeed. So context for everyone with regards to this bonus Nitro Nights. We are going from well wherever our start point may well be in a few moments time up to bash at the beach 96 and that is where we are going to cut off the nwo obviously does run in various incarnations and and various storylines in years forward from that moment but we think that it's better for us to watch the weekly tv talk about what we're seeing and then chuck in bonus episodes reviewing certain aspects so whereas this episode will cut off at bash at the beach when you know the, the the famous turn happened, I suppose, and and the trio of invaders, I guess, or outsiders, uh, were finally formed. It will cut off there, and in some point in the future months, we will do an, an another bonus episode looking at the second part of the NWO, and then there'll probably be a third one and a fourth one as the as WCW and Nitro Nights keeps on going forward from week to week, month to month, year to year, Danny. 
Absolutely, mate. And the NWO ran for quite a number of years, um, even after WCW. So I hope this will be a nice little side project for us. Well, that's interesting because I know you recorded for your uh, one of your other podcasts, One Man's Meet. You recorded a look at the NWO in WWE recently, didn't you? Absolutely, mate. We did that last week. And um, yeah, that went three hours long. Um, yeah, and it was nice to... Um, go through their entire run with um, the great Chris Bellis. A little bit, you know, clarity for everyone. This ain't going three hours long. No. I don't <laughs> with how much I'm coughing and so on and how I'm feeling right now, I ain't sure my throat can last three hours. So that's not going to happen. Don't panic, everybody. Don't turn off now worrying that you're going to have to put up with me for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> Danny, our story begins not in 1996, as some may think. Our story begins actually sort of the mid towards the trail end of 1995 where Eric Bischoff, who is in charge of WCW at this point has decided that things are going a bit stale in the main event picture in WCW. They've got the same, the same faces all the time. Sting, Savage, Luger is back in the company. Uh, Hogan is obviously there as well, but Hogan's, crowd responses as we have witnessed on nitro nights were very up and down depending on whereabouts they were and what was going on with the storyline at the time and maybe it was time for a change danny yeah absolutely since we began this project um that was the first thing we noticed was hulk hogan you can we both said it was stale but the crowd reactions were more down than up yeah, and you got to think, you know, the whole red and yellow, real American, you know, the superhero does it all for the kids and, and so on aspect to the Hulkamania character, I guess, had been running at this point for a good 12 to 13 years, maybe some, something in that region. And it had been, you know, Hogan, the character, Hogan, the individual were, had been at, at the top of pretty much every pay-per-view the WWF put on in that time, barring a period when he left in 92 and into 93. He's, he joined WCW and was top of the card straight away in WCW from his, you know when he signed for the company, I believe it was 94, right the way through to the time we're talking about now. That's a long time for wrestling fans to be seeing the same thing over and over again, I feel, Danny. Yeah, it certainly is. It's like... Um... Uh, I believe like that's yeah, well over a decade, isn't it? Yes, it will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, it will be. Yeah, and it's. I, mean, I don't want to downplay anything Hogan has done for the business. Yes, okay, we 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 mock him quite a bit on on this podcast and numerous other podcasts that you and I appear on. The guy away from the ring in recent years has had, shall we say, some controversies to put it put it politely. Yeah, and you know, it, it is what it is. However, we need to remember how important Hulk Hogan, the individual, the character, and, and the whole Hulkamania, I suppose, phenomenon would be a, a word to use. How important that was to wrestling in, in 19, well, yeah, in, in the early 1980s, WrestleMania 1, uh, WrestleMania 3 in 87, you know, those tens of thousands of people at WrestleMania 3, a huge, like the biggest attendance for a wrestling show up to that point. All the way through, you know, until he left the company in the early 90s. Even his return, you know, okay, WrestleMania 9. I, I, I appreciate you don't mind WrestleMania 9. Me personally, it's not one of my favorite shows at all. Yeah. But even WrestleMania 9, where, we, we, you know, 
people of a certain age look back on maybe in a bit of a negative light. Hogan was still at top of the card with the world title then. And, you know, people were still paying to see the guy in, in sort of comparison to other people of that era. I mean, the business in, in 93 and then going into 94 and 95, which we'll talk about in a moment, the business was, was on a downward slope. It was, it was in the toilet. So Hogan wasn't as big a draw as he was in 93 as he may well have been in 86, 87, 88, whatever. But in comparison to other people, top of the card in the WWF, Hogan still fared very, very well in that, that, that time, in that, that era. Hogan still fared very well with regards to merchandise sales, ticket sales, the house show circuit, if he ever actually worked any, which was quite minimal at this point in time. And, and all the stuff that I suppose, uh, when, when people talk about a wrestler being a draw, when people talk about wrestlers being a, a moneymaker, it's those areas of the business that people kind of check upon, isn't it, Danny? Yeah, it certainly is. It's like that's why I'm so glad that we that we're able to use the internet now to actually look at things like this and it's like, oh, this has been documented. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So Hogan was approached in ninety five by Eric Bischoff with the idea of of turning heel, the idea of being a bad guy for the first time in his career. First time in his mainstream career, shall we say. He did work as a heel a long, long time before this. But the first time in his main mainstream career, and since he's become effectively a, a, you know, a cultural icon, I guess. He, Hogan in the 80s was as big as many movie stars and so on. For He was one of the most recognizable faces in the world at that point. Now, Bischoff went down to Hogan's house. It's quite a famous story. Eric Bischoff has told this on numerous occasions. And he has this idea to talk to Hogan about how that could be done. So he goes down to meet Hogan at Hogan's house. Hogan sat there, has a couple of beers ready for them. They sit down, they start having a chat. And it seems that there's you know, plenty of time available for this discussion. Bischoff explains in, in modern day interviews and in his podcast, 83 Weeks and so on. Until he brings up the idea of Hogan potentially turning heel. Hogan apparently sat there for a few moments, had a, had a think about it, and then basically escorted Bischoff from his house and said, I don't think that works for me, brother, and, and, and so on. And he said he's got to go pick the kids up from school and escorted, uh, basically kicked Bischoff out of the house, effectively shut the door behind him, and that was that. The idea was an absolute no-go in 1995, Danny. Wow. I haven't heard that story before, but I can just picture it because... Um... Yeah, and I can picture Hulk Hogan being so offended by that. He's like, no, just get out, mate. <laughs> well, yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I mean, the, the big thing with Hogan, and this will become apparent in our conversation shortly when we get into 96 and so on, which, which will be momentarily. Yes, again, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the guy now. There's a lot of things he's said and done now that aren't aren't oh, very pleasant. Let's let's just leave it at that. I'm not going to go diving into the aspects of, of Mr. Bully's character that are easy to, to criticise, and rightfully so, should be criticised. But when you hear from people like Bischoff, like Jimmy Hart, like, I mean, even people who have took advantage of him over the years, with the likes of Beefcake and so on, Brian Nobbs was a close friend of Hogan's for a very long time as well. When you hear from these people and they're talking openly about hogan 
they say that he's he's quite easily led. He he can be he can have people in his ear that can quite easily bend his opinion to what they want it to be. Uh, ironically, Jimmy Hart is one of those people, despite the fact he sits in this 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 talking head interview I've seen with him saying this. Uh, Bischoff became very trusted by Hogan in later years, and uh, as you're aware, Danny Bischoff spent numerous years in TNA looking after Hulk Hogan's interests and just protecting Hulk himself. Yeah. Brutus Beefcake is notorious for always you know, getting jobs and so on because of his pull with Hogan. And Hogan would always try and look after his friends. And, and something that people say a great deal about Hogan that we don't tend to hear a lot of, I suppose, outside of the wrestling bubble, is that he's incredibly loyal to his friends. And he'll always try and look after people who, who are close to him. So I suppose it is easy to maybe manipulate that situation to your benefit, I guess, Danny. It really is. And um, the thing about that is, uh, it's like you're benefiting your friends, but you're also, my take on it is like, you're putting um, the wrestling company that you have friends for, um, you're making it suffer. Like The biggest example I can give of that is when Hulk Hogan had TNA hire Bubba the Love Sponge. I mean, he wasn't needed, but <laughs> it speaks to the loyalty you just said, Si. It's like, yeah, you're my friend, so I'm going to get you a job here, um, even though no one wants you here. Yeah, I mean, one of the one one of the biggest examples I can think of would be Hogan's ex-wife. Yeah. Uh, Linda, I think her name. Was that right? Linda Hogan? Yeah. That, yes. And that she had quite a say on his career and what he would be doing with certain aspects that people were unaware of until the likes of Bischoff experienced it himself uh, and so on. And Hogan turning heel, Linda Hogan, nipped in the bud on, on previous occasions. She was like, no, you know, you can't do your charity work. You can't do this. You can't do that. But people like Jimmy Hart and again, Bischoff and so on. And even Hogan's agent, who was a guy called Mr. Young, Peter Young, I think it was for a few years. They've all on record stating, yeah, Linda didn't want Hogan to turn heel because he would make less money. That's how she viewed it at, at certain point. Cause obviously as, as the top guy in the eighties wrestling boom, as the guy top of the card, the number one babyface, he is making a lot, a lot of money. Yeah, that makes sense. If you read her book, um, you can definitely see um, <laughs> she's that type of woman. Interesting. I didn't even know she'd written a book. Have you Have you read that? Have you done it? I read it a long time ago. I believe it's in one of the boxes. In uh, I have to dig it out, and we can get some excerpts into the uh, socials. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, that, that would I think be interesting. Two thousand eleven. Right. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Yeah. So, so you've got this kind of. I suppose, I mean, entourage or, or hangers-on, I guess, always around Hogan. I suppose leeching off the, the moneymaker, potentially, is the impression I get. And the idea of Hogan turning heel, Hogan wasn't too favourable of this himself at this point, obviously, but also other people around him were regularly telling him this is you know, not a good idea at any point if people suggest it. So there's that aspect to what happened in 95. Now, Across the other side of the divide, for want of a better term, in the world of the WWF, in Vince McMahon's company, the business was in the toilet. I mean, wrestling itself, well, I mean, Nitro had started in September of 95 and was doing well for a new show, don't get me wrong, but 
wrestling in general was not making money and the WWF were in trouble. Uh, Shawn Michaels, Kevin Nash, Scott Hall and the like were top of the card at this point. Bret Hart was still there as well. Bret, Michaels and so on were very much top of the card going into WrestleMania 12 in, in 96. But the, the, the business wasn't making money. And there's famous stories from the likes of Jim Ross and Jim Cornette who were associated on and off with the WWF around this time of there being occasions where you know companies were coming in and literally taking water coolers out of the building because bills couldn't be paid this is how much the company was was in trouble yeah now there's negotiations with bret hart's contract as they went into 96 as well which is you know something that comes up in a a later date with regards to montreal and, and, and all that sort of stuff but the wwf was struggling financially I mean, don't get me wrong, they were still making far more money than I, but at the, to, in, by comparison to previous years, the WWF were not it, not making as much money. They didn't make as much money in 95 as they did in 94. Yeah. And in 94, they didn't make as much money as they did in, say, 92, 91, 90, and so on. It had been on a bit of a downward slope since we got back to the 90s. Now, because of this, there were aspects of the business that money wasn't, shall we say, as free-flowing towards and sometimes that was certain people's contracts. So as as we leave 95 and head into 1996, two guys who were very, very prominent on WWF television, uh, Diesel and Scott Hall, their contracts were up for renegotiation. And I'm not sure if you're aware of how WWE or WWF contracts worked at this time, Danny, with regards to the, the, the rolling on signing and so on. I have a vague idea, but um, not a full idea. Okay. The, the basic gist of it is, as I understand it, and again, each contract was ever so slightly different depending on circumstances, but they, they generally followed a, uh, you know, a sort of standard format, I guess. Uh, we'll, use, we'll use Scott Hall as an example, because that's who we're going to come to first, I guess. So Razor Ramon, then. They would get paid a certain amount of money as their, I suppose, show fee. Or, you know, for, for wrestling on a certain night, that would be coming to them relatively quickly from when they earn it. They would also have a cut of merchandise sales, which sometimes would take up to six months to filter through the company from the merchandise company through WWE's books and then on to the wrestler themselves for any loyalties that they receive for merchandise depicting their character or their or their likeness and so on. And then you had pay-per-view buys and each wrestler on the card would receive a certain percentage depending upon pay-per-view buys they were involved in that would again take a longer period of time i mean you hear stories about the early days of pay-per-view as an example people would receive what figure they should expect from an event but maybe not see it for 12 months yeah now over time that shortened and you'd see it in six months you see it in three months whatever but that's how that kind of worked because you had you had the pay-per-view company that was hosting the event i suppose with regards to their service in various areas a lot of smaller pay-per-view companies sometimes just you know little mum and dad ran local companies would promote pay-per-view shows via the bigger pay-per-view company as well they were like a sort of subcontractor i guess would be a a term you could use for that so if somebody bought the pay-per-view via mr and mrs smith in kentucky 
who was their local provider. That money would then go to Mr. and Mrs. Smith. They would take a little bit of they would take their tiny percentage before forwarding it onto the main pay-per-view company. That pay-per-view company would then forward it onto the WWE. The WWE would then take what they had, divide up different things they had to pay before whittling it down to the talent. That's one of the last points of call. So that was how the money would sort of go into the business and then via the different payments, merchandise, wages, and or appearance fees or whatever, and, and pay-per-view fees would eventually filter down to the talent. Now, at, the, at this point, there was no huge guarantee. So with regards to their appearance fee and so on, they had a very small amount of money per date. And the number of dates were relatively low, but they were expected to work many, many more. And because the appearance fee wasn't exactly substantial, I, I think some guys were on as, as little as $50 for wrestling on Raw, and then house show appearances were considerably higher because at the time, wrestling on Monday Night Raw was seen as a big opportunity. You're getting on TV, it's exposure, so you make more money elsewhere. They were expected then to work five, six, seven nights a week to bump their income up. Scott Hall wasn't too pleased about this and kind of felt his money had plateaued, basically. His merchandise sales had reached a point that they weren't getting any higher. At his appearances and, and the nights he was wrestling, he couldn't do any more. He was working as much as he possibly could. And it, it's the money coming in from elsewhere, any little tiny cut he would get of pay-per-view buy rates or anything like that, if, if that happened, wasn't getting any higher either. If anything, it was going down because the business was in the toilet. Now, Hall's contract was coming up for what they call renewal or renegotiation, Danny, because the way it would work would be there's a date when the contract would be set to expire. And if you did not state to Vince McMahon or the WWE that you wished to renegotiate your terms, that contract would then roll on for another year. So it was on you as the talent to say, I want to renegotiate. Not necessarily say this is the date I'm going to leave, but say this is I would like to renegotiate in the build-up to the date of my contract expiring. Quite famously, Bret Hart in the early 90s was negotiating with WCW whilst he was the Intercontinental Champion. I think it was 1991, which led to him losing the title to the Mountie because they were pissed off of him. <laughs> uh, in, in 91, his contract, he believed, was going to expire. He was talking to WCW about going then to, uh, uh, to you know Atlanta, but didn't realize that his contract had automatically rolled on for another 12 months. So he couldn't sign a deal anywhere else and kind of shot himself in the foot so everyone needs to remember that when it comes to montreal brett had history about this but that's a, that's a different podcast for a different day um <laughs> basically scott hall decided i need to speak to vince i need to ask vince about about some more money effectively because he feels his money had plateaued he wasn't earning what he wanted to what he wanted to receive danny so he put in the notice for renegotiating he wanted to speak to vince about about more money how do you feel now, I suppose, looking at how wrestling contracts work and so on in the present day? How do you feel that the, the way the WWF deals were set up in, in the mid-90s and before? Uh, bear in mind, they're, they're constantly being referred to as you know, these freelance performers. That they're, they're, they're Supposedly, they don't work for the WWF. They haven't got health care or anything like that. But 
they're kind of tied in with this contract, which means they can't work anywhere else, and all the money they can make is via the company. What are your thoughts on that kind of, I suppose, outdated way of doing things? Yeah, that's a perfect way of putting it, outdated, because it's very one-sided, um, a WWE contract. I was listening to a shoot interview with Paul London not too long ago, and um, he claimed that uh, somebody in his family was a lawyer, and they had a look at it, at the contract, and um, they just said, how is this even legal? Um, and that was the mid-2000s, so... By 1996, I can't imagine what they w- thought they could have got away with and what they did get away with. Um, people always blast like WCW contracts, but very, very, it's a whole different world compared to how you just described the WWF contract. Yeah, it's it's very much, I suppose, stacked in favour of the company, isn't it? Yeah, very one-sided. Yeah, it's a case of we don't, want you to work here as an employee you don't work for us because a big company the size of wwf especially when the you know when they certain certain situations on the stock exchange and so on a big company like wwe wwf if you worked for them as an employee you were entitled to certain rights and that would be health care because everything's done differently in the states in comparison to here in the uk we're very fortunate to have the nhs but there you have to pay for your health care and so on Certain companies would offer it and, and you know, the, the certain companies of a certain size would be expected to offer it or, or even have legal requirements to. So they wouldn't, they get away from having to pay for healthcare. They'd get away with having to pay for travel, for example. You know, so I mean, certain companies now it's a case of we want you to go and work in Glasgow for two days. We'll put you up in a hotel and we'll pay for this travel for you to get there because you're working for us. Now, that's you know that's the way it is in, in numerous jobs all over the place. For WWE, it's never been that way. It was a case of, oh, you're working this date, this date, and this date in this place, this place, and this place. Right? Okay. Well, how am I getting there? Well, that's on you. You don't work for us. We've just found you. This is what this is what you're doing. So not only did they have wages that had, in Scott Hall's words, plateaued, they also had expenses like travel, like hotels, and all that sort of stuff to cover out of their own pocket as well with these wages that were dropping because attendances were dropping, merchandise sales were dropping, pay-per-view buy rates were dropping. So from a financial standpoint, there was a killer schedule, 300, 340 dates a year. But if anything, there was certain aspects of the money that over the next 12 months or so would probably start dropping a touch, Danny. Yeah. And you can also add to that list of... um... Uh, if WWF wants you to do like a radio or a media appearance as well, um, that's extra. That's an extra days of work and an extra day that you're not getting paid. Mm, I don't know the ins and outs of like, getting paid for appearances. I don't know if they would have received anything. Yeah, I'm not sure, but yeah, I mean, you can understand why at this point in time, without any real viable alternative, why people wrestled for the WWF? Because I mean, WWF was still very much as a company, it wasn't new it had been around for a while turner ted turner bought it several years previously but as a real player in the business you know the the old uh, adage of atm eric and the money they used to throw around and so on that hadn't come into it just yet so mm-hmm. a lot of guys would see the wwf as their only real big option i guess wcw still had a very i suppose southern territories stigma attached to it 
Yeah, and we've we've seen a lot of that in the early days of Nitro. Mm. Um, just going back to contracts a minute, mate. Um, do you think the law to go to the WWF to sign that one-sided contract? The law was like um, the law. Sorry, law. However, you say that word, um, it was like okay, we want the exposure more than uh, the low pay. Like we we don't mind the low pay if we're getting tons of exposure because. WWF was on USA at that point. I think with Monday Night Raw appearances, that's you got you hit the nail on the head there. TV appearances, Monday Night Raw, especially when it started in '93, and obviously we're talking here, you know, close to three years, aren't we? Since it started, it's like January '93, yeah. so we're we're talking end of '95 going into '96 here. It, it's it was established by that point already as the wrestling show to watch that was that was that was the brand now they were paid they were paid less for appearance appearing on raw when raw first started than they were a house show so i think you're spot on with that it uh, and it's a case of the way it was sold to the wrestlers was you wrestle on monday night raw that's you appearing in front of the nation sometimes you know many countries i mean we had raw here in the uk and so on so then when you come to selling merch or you come to um, promoting a pay-per-view your name means more and the same for the you know going around the the house show circuit i guess your name means more being on that poster on that advert because you've appeared on television yeah so it was seen as an opportunity on the monday night with very very low pay to publicize yourself to make more money the rest of the week or the rest of the month or the rest of the year, potentially. SJP World Media. Hello, brother. This is NWA WCW Enhancement Talent, Randy Hogan, baby. Being in the ring with the Road Warriors, Vader, Abdul the Butcher, Midnight Express and all them guys. Let me tell you, it was dang rough. But not as rough as listening to Cyan Mags on that chain wrestling show, brother. What you gonna do when this pair of fools, Cyan Mags and chain wrestling, brother, runs wild on you? Scott Hall, when he asked McMahon about more money, was basically told no. So we can't do it, can't afford it, is what it is. Scott then said, okay, this schedule is is brutal. I'm not making as much money as I possibly could. And the potential for dates out in Japan were always there for somebody like a Scott Hall. He had, he had offers on a regular basis. I mean, going back to his WCW days before being raised Ramon, Hall would go out to, w, uh, to, sorry, to Japan and work dates and so on. A week, two-week tour in Japan would make much, much more money than working several months Vince's schedule because the payoffs were greater. Yes, okay, it was be intense when you're there, an intense week, two weeks, month, whatever. The pay the, the, the tour would be intense, the, the work rate would be, you know, higher. But the payoffs were so much more that you'd effectively come away earning months worth of WWE money for a couple of weeks in Japan. Yeah. And this is where the independent contractor bit comes back in. If you are an independent contractor working 
linked to a company and you turn around and say, I got potential to earn more money over there if I go there for a fortnight. So here are my dates. I'm unavailable. I'm going over there. I'll be back on this date. Legally, as an independent contractor, you're entitled to do that sort of thing because you're effectively self-employed. The way the WWE contract was stacked against the talent, the WWE were like, no, sorry, we don't want you to go to Japan. We need you on our television. We need you on our house shows. You've made a commitment to this company. Whereas they would only guarantee the talent a minimum number of dates a month, which was relatively low. They would be expected to work much, much more. So that the talent couldn't turn around and effectively take the minimum. For two reasons, I guess. They couldn't try to take the minimum because <laughs> the WWF would be arguing, well, we need you here, we need you there, we've got TV on this date, TV on that date. And also they'd probably be blackballed by the company for doing this. Mm. It's, it's very much a starving artist mentality, isn't it? I guess so. I guess so. So on the basis of that, on the basis of not being able to agree with Vince to work elsewhere to add to his income or get extra income from where he currently works. I mean, again, he's not asking to leave here, Danny. I want to stress this point as well. Scott Hall, yeah. all the interviews I've read about this, all the, all the interviews I've seen online and so on, Scott Hall wasn't asking to leave at this point. He was just asking for more stability financially, more money and so on. And there's a famous line that Scott Hall's used in a couple of shoot interviews saying, I didn't want to be the top paid guy. I didn't need to be the highest paid guy. I just wanted more money myself. Yeah. And he describes himself as a redneck. He says he lives relatively within his means. He doesn't need to be making top, top guy money, but he just needed more money, which I suppose, you know, a lot of people in life go through a similar situation, Danny, don't they? Of course. Yeah. I mean, that's just, it's the necessity of life, really. You need more money. And if um, Scott Hall's out there just, wrestling night after night after night and he feels like I mean his style was getting bigger um, 94, 95 and especially 96 he feels he should be compensated and he, he doesn't come across greedy at all at that point mm. yeah exactly exactly uh, Scott Hall then was given I suppose the opportunity to talk with WCW this stems from, oddly enough, Diamond Dallas Page. Now, Diamond Dallas Page at the time, as we know from Nitro Nights, looking back on each episode of Nitro each week, Page was still finding his feet in the company in 95, going into 96. He was multicolored. He had 4,000 gimmicks at the same time. <laughs> uh, and was really sort of, he wasn't the Diamond Dallas Page that we would go on to love in later years. He was still very much trying to find his feet. Page at the time lived a few doors down from Eric Bischoff. So according to Bischoff, it wouldn't be unusual for his weekends or his days off to be disturbed by Diamond Dallas Page banging on his door and wanting to talk to him about something. And on this one occasion, he said, look, I've got a friend whose contract is up with WWF. Would you be interested in talking to him? At this point, Eric Bischoff, and again, a lot of what that will happen in this this story and this review of this time period will come down to good timing for regards to WCW and the guys involved. A lot of it comes down to just the timing being right and spot on at that moment. And this is one of them. Yeah. Bischoff was looking to hire more mainstream recognized talent. So talent that was known all over America. 
as opposed to just maybe in the southern states or in WCW strongholds. You know, primary, I'm not saying like just Rick, Rick Flair was only known down safe. Of course not. That's ridiculous. Sting's only known down safe. Of course not. That's ridiculous. But you can see where I'm, I'm, I'm sort of getting towards. You, yeah. sort of, you get past the main event picture in 1995, excluding a few guys. You get past the top end of the card, then I should say. A lot of the guys in WCW that we have seen in our first year of Nitro Nights probably wouldn't be known to people who you know, weren't watching Saturday Night. Whereas there are guys in the WWF who would be known to WCW fans, even if they've not watched Raw, because of the wrestling magazines and the na- and the exposure they were getting. I think, Danny. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you wouldn't uh, think um, uh, Robert Parker would, is a name that is used in a household, would you? At this time, <laughs> <laughs> you'd be amazed how much we talk about him here, me and the wife. Yep. <laughs> no, I'm lying. I'm com- I'm completely making that up. <laughs> <laughs> The timing of DDP speaking to Bischoff, like I said, was was spot on because Bischoff was looking for more recognisable mainstream names. Razor Ramon, at this point, was very recognisable mainstream name. So he's, he's okay. Let's let's talk to him. So the, numbers were discussed, and Scott Hall basically said, "Okay, I'm interested." And he handed in his 90 day notice, which would be what would be you know what was needed to stop that clause I mentioned earlier on in their contracts triggering to make that roll over for another year. You know, it's like how I said about Bret Hart missed his in the early 90s. Scott Hall here handed his notice in to trigger that clause. Yeah. Now, Vince McMahon apparently didn't even talk to Scott Hall about this. The legal document, the letter was sent there with Scott Hall's notice triggering his 90 days notice in 90 days on leaving. Vince never even responded, never spoke to him or anything. The only real response he got from higher up in WWE, again, according to Scott Hall, everything I'm saying here is is accounts from people who were involved in in this story and so on, was notification he had failed the drugs test. Now, the drugs test he took and that he subsequently failed was six weeks old. Wow. So they've been sat on this what must have been a positive drug test for him to fail it for six weeks and whilst they needed him and again i'm looking at this from one viewpoint i'm I'm taking one side in the argument here there's obviously two sides to every story but from outside looking in it looks to me like when they needed scott hall on the road when they needed scott hall on television when they needed scott hall on pay-per-views that positive drug test was kind of ignored yeah now he's handed his notice in oh bang there it is. And it was also all over the dirt sheets and so on. Scott Hall says he didn't tell anyone. So there's only really one other place that could have come from. Yeah. It, that was. Do you think that was done to sabotage him possibly going elsewhere? Um, yeah, potentially. Yeah. Potentially. It also hurts his stock, doesn't it? Yeah. You know, if he's handed his 90-day notice in, he may not have agreed exact terms with WCW. He might be still negotiating his contract and a failed drug test, a failed piss test, as they refer to it as in the business, pops up all over the news. All of a sudden, his bargaining power is diminished a little bit with WCW, I feel. Yeah. I mean, didn't this same thing happen to um, Tully Blanchard when he tried to come to uh, back to WCW, I think, in the 80s? Yeah, that's that's right. Yeah, I mean, Arn and Tully left the Brainbusters left the uh, WWF 
in 80, I want to say 89. They were tag champs in 89. I think they left in 89. Arn was definitely back in WCW in early 90. So Tully didn't go back because his was a cocaine test failure, oh. I believe. So, yeah, so it's a very similar sort of thing, but I'm not sure the exact in- insights of that without going back and checking it out a bit more myself. But yeah, eventually Hall was back working some house shows and some TV and so on. But again, Vince never went up to him and said, let's have a chat. Let's sort this contract situation out and so on until the night he was leaving the company when apparently Vince was quite animated and saying, you work for me. Why have this? Why has this happened? Why can't we talk about money now? And Hall was like, I've already agreed terms with Bischoff. I'm not, I can't do that. I'm not comfy. I've already got a, a, you know, a legal, a legally binding contract with WCW. So that was that. Hall was effectively done. It's very much like the way you explain Vince McMahon's actions. Um, it's very on point to a lot of talent, what they say in shoot interviews. Um, it's very, very much the same difference. So, um, yeah, I can, it's totally believable. Yes. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I'm, I'm not in the room. I'm not part of these conversations. Every story has two sides sometimes more than that especially in the wrestling <laughs> business but yeah this is uh very much just looking at interviews online interviews that, that are either in print or video format or whatever podcast form or whatever with, with people actually involved and just trying to relay that information as best we can here on nitro nights and so on with regards to kevin nash nash was in a similar mindset to not being overly happy about what he was earning at the time. I mean, you got to remember Kevin Nash in the early nineties was the longest reigning WWF champion of that decade. He had, he, he also turned heel. He was heading into a WrestleMania match with the undertaker. He was a big deal at this point in the WWF, but again, wasn't earning the money that you would think somebody of that stature in the company should be getting. Yeah. The big issue of Nash though, as opposed to the money, was the schedule. Nash has never been a fan of traveling. If you listen to his Click This podcast, he, he's mentioned it on there. Various other, I mean, the guy's, the guy's a giant, Danny, isn't he? Yeah, he's uh, nearly seven foot tall. Can you imagine trying to get in a little airplane? <laughs> you know, or, or, or traveling in a, in a bus or a van or a car or whatever every day? all these different you know, ventures all over the States and so on. And the only way to avoid being uncomfortable in these ventures because of your size, which is you know a big part of you being in the role you're in, is to pay even more money out of your wages or your you know, payoffs from the company that you're already kind of unhappy with just to be able to be comfortable to travel to go and earn that money in the first place. Yeah, it's a vicious cycle. It is. It is. So... With regards to Nash, he apparently had conversations about money that were very informal, very sort of light chats and and, and the schedule and so on as well. Uh, but the the straw that broke the back with Kevin Nash, and that's a I'm using that terminology there because that is literally what I've heard Nash say himself. The straw that broke the camel's back was a pay per view called Rage in the Cage. It was an in your house event. I believe it was in your house six. I want to say where it was building up towards the WrestleMania contest with The Undertaker. And in this match, the plan was for The Undertaker to 
burst through the canvas in the cage and drag Kevin Nash under the ring as he's facing off in the main event of the pay-per-view against Bret Hart. The original plan was that Bret Hart would take the jackknife powerbomb, so that would eliminate him from what was going on. It looked like Nash was going to win. The Undertaker would interfere, drag Nash away, and, and that would set up where they were going in the future of the stories. Apparently, Bret didn't want to take the jackknife. Uh, according to Nash, his well, Nash's terminology was he got boo-boo face, Danny. <laughs> oh, that, that old boo-boo face. Yeah, very aware of what that means. <laughs> the old boo-boo face. Yeah, Brett apparently got boo-boo face on, on numerous occasions, but there we go. He didn't want to take the jackknife because it made him look weak. It made him look beaten, which was kind of the point, I think. But apparently it would make him look beaten and that would be that. So he didn't want to take the, the jackknife. You know, the the story goes that the Undertaker at this point actually turned around to Bret Hart, frustrated with how Bret would be sometimes, and said the ter- said said the words, "Motherfucker, it isn't always about you." <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Which is well, probably one of my favorite Undertaker quotes ever. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but Bret went and spoke to Vince, and the, the ending was changed, so the same scenario happened just without the jackknife. And Nash was incredibly frustrated with this. He said he wasn't earning the money Brett was earning. He wasn't earning the money Taker was earning. He was involved in these big main event spots. The travel was brutal for him. And now he's getting, you know, the ending of matches that he's involved in changed just because some guy didn't want to take his finish. So apparently he then turned to Scott Hall and said, see if there's a deal for me down south. It works out that Kevin Nash's contract was up within a week or so of Scott Hall's. So again, we come back to that perfect timing element, Danny, don't we? Yeah, we certainly do. And it's just like, yeah, if if Kevin Nash had came in a year after this, I don't think we would have the same impact it has had. No, you're totally right. You're totally right. The timing of all of this mm. is spectacular. I mean, you've got to think, if Hogan had turned heel in 95, if when Bischoff first goes and sits down at Hogan's house and Hogan decides, nope, not for me, i got to go do the school run. If Hogan actually sat there and went, do you know what? You're right. My crowd reactions aren't great. Perhaps turning heel would freshen up my character. The NWO doesn't happen in the yeah. format we see it anyway. If Nash's contract and Hall's contract expire at different times in the calendar year, again, it waters down the effect of what we're seeing. If Hogan's already here and Nash and Hall arrive months apart, it completely changes everything. So again, it all comes down to timing, I think, Danny. Absolutely, mate. Nash apparently agreed terms with WCW relatively quickly. And this is where we get to the famous um, guaranteed contracts WCW were offering at this time. Now, with regards to the guaranteed contracts, it was a vast sum of money, Danny. A vast sum of money for much, much less when it came to taking up calendar time. A lot less dates. Yeah. Apparently, according to Nash and Hall on different interviews, and again, this varies depending on which interview you hear. And I suppose we'll throw Bischoff into this as well, because he was the one negotiating the contracts. When you speak, when you hear Nash and Hall speak and Bischoff speak, it depends on which interview you hear, where it's from, and when it's from, with regards to the figures they actually use. 
for what they would be getting paid and for how many dates. With regards to the dates that they were signed up for, it seems like looking at what each person has said over the years in different interviews, we're going somewhere between 165 and 180 dates per year. Now, you compare that to 300 plus in the WWE, that's a massive drop in the, yeah. the, the, the travel, the toll on your body, etc. Yeah. It's a huge, I mean, for Nash especially, who had a big issue with the, the travel schedule, uh, how much of a benefit do you think that is to him? A lot. I mean, it's essentially cut in half, isn't it? The, the entire workload. Mm. Well, yeah, yeah, I suppose you're right. It's not far off, is it? Yeah. No, I suppose you're right. I mean, that, that's very, that's a massive deal, isn't it? Let's be honest, huge. Yeah, okay. Um, with regards to the actual money they're being paid, and Kevin Nash, a big, st- a big thing for Nash looking at this with regards to less travel and guaranteed money, not just a minimum number of dates for a certain amount of money per date, which is what he was getting in the WWF. We will pay you this guaranteed money no matter what. And you can earn more if you do more dates, etc., etc. Nash also had his first child on the way. So I think that's a big part of this story as well. If Nash already had kids and had been traveling with the WWF, or if Nash and his wife weren't expecting at this time, maybe that changes his mindset again, Danny? I don't know. What do you think? I think, yeah, it's very much the child is a massive factor because um, I've, I've heard some interviews with Kevin Nash about this, and he said... Um, it's something to the effect of like uh, I've got to look out for my family uh, so if he was the Kevin Nash as he was three years before this he's just uh, like I um, uh, don't know if he was married yet or not but he's, he's there was no child involved so he can go and do these um, insane dates for the WWF for little <laughs> money but when you've got a child uh, in there it changes the dynamic yeah yeah 100 percent, 100 percent. um with regards to the dates obviously that's a bit up and down and you know you can probably find the details online if you, if you look but where you find it from isn't always accurate and so on how much they earned in 96 for wcw though we can find out relatively easily all of the wcw payroll details are readily available online um a couple of different reasons one is the nature of the company it was and two there was a racism lawsuit with regards to people earning different amounts depending on different scenarios so you know this had to be made public knowledge with regards to the racism lawsuit now bearing in mind in 1996 these guys started well hall started 27th of may so we've already passed what five months at this point into the year yeah nash then started start of june so we're looking at five months plus for both of them they've missed they earned in 1996 danny for not a full year scott hall earned three hundred and seventy nine thousand two hundred and ninety five dollars Kevin Nash, a smidge less, at $336,261. There is only five names that earned more than them in the whole of WCW for the calendar year of 1996. It will surprise no one to know Hogan, Savage, Sting, and Flair were top of that list. And the fifth highest earner, 
earning just a smidge above Hall and Nash was actually Lex Luger. So I think with regards to WCW and the top of the card in 96, Hogan, Savage, Sting, Flair, Luger, you can understand why their money is what it is. But the fact that Hall and Nash didn't even work a full year and were paid these sums is quite spectacular to me. That really is, mate. I mean, we've sat here, we've, we are seven months into Nitro in 1996 and we've seen those five names uh, uh, pretty much in every single main event of Nitro. And if you compare that to Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, just like, wow, like they did all that hard work and the outsiders show up and kind of just get paid just um, for coming over. Well, this is it. I mean, obviously, there's certain deed that those figures were, you know, listed on the WCW payroll for 1996. It may be pro rata, it may be whatever. There may be, you know, every sort of details to it. But the fact that only the five top big main eventers that were there before them earned more than them, and they came in at the end of May, and they're earning that amount, and they've dropped their dates down to what they were earning, is huge for me. Absolutely huge. The night they leave the WWF is quite famous. It's the curtain call. It's in Madison Square Garden. According to Nash, Hall, and Shawn Michaels, Vince gave them permission to do this. So the likes of Cornette and so on, all turning around and saying, oh, they're spitting on the WWF name. They screwed Vince. And it's disgusting because, you know, baby faces and heels are hugging each other in Madison Square Garden. Vince Sr. will be turning in his grave. Yeah, it's all media bullshit. Vince has apparently <laughs> given them permission to do all that. But he gives Sean permission to do anything at this point in his career, I think. He just loved a bit of Sean, didn't he? He really did, yeah. Um, I'm of the belief that, yeah, Vince Mann had to give them permission because if he didn't, um, I, I don't think he would have done this on television, but if he didn't, I can't see it happening, to be honest. Um, I don't know. Mm. I don't know, because... I mean, there's the grey area around the, the curtain call, isn't there? We've got the guys involved saying, Vince said, yes, you can, because there's no cameras present. Because it's a house show in Madison Square Garden. But then all the stories dictate that Triple H was punished for this. Because yeah. you couldn't touch Michaels. He was your number one guy. Hall and Nash had left, so they ain't going to give a shit either way. So all you had was was Triple H to punish, and he was actively punished, which then, of course, led... He was supposed to ring King of the Ring in 96. That led then to him being punished, not winning King of the Ring in 96. Austin did, cut the Austin 316 promo, and off we were to the races with regards to that. But I wonder... I mean, the footage you see of the curtain call, that famous moment in Madison Square Garden where the heels and the faces all hug each other in front of the crowd and they're saying goodbye to their friends... It's really scratchy, old-fashioned, handheld camcorder footage because it's a house show. Yeah. And again, to me, it comes down to timing and it comes down to real small little details. And you always wonder, what if? What if that guy didn't have that camera at that point? Yeah. Would, would Triple H have been punished if Vince apparently gave them permission? Again, Vince giving them permission is down to interviews I've heard with Hall, Nash and Michaels. No, yeah, and I just want to bring up a point about Triple H being punished. I've always felt that that was way overblown until I read, looking into this episode, that um, the King of the Ring that he was supposed to win, do you know where he was on that card? No. He was in a dark match um, 
against Aldo Montoya. And then uh, the next night, he got rolled over by Ahmed Johnson. And then the week after that, he got beat by Mark Miro. So I'm starting to believe maybe he was punished. But I don't think he was as pu- uh, punished for as long as he say or as they make out on documentaries. Yeah, I mean, the, the WWE... And again, I think this is why it's so important that people do their own research and mm. and, and look at lots of different viewpoints of, of incidents rather than reading one particular person's viewpoint. Meltzer, we're looking at you. Or <laughs> listening to you know WWE's own versions of events because they are famous for, shall we say, rewriting history in their own mindset and, and sort of revisionist history aspect of their DVDs and documentaries and so on. I always tend to find with wrestling, and it's not every time, but I, I, I find quite often that if there's controversy or a story and you've got five or six people or even one, two, three, whatever, people talking about a particular incident and they're all talking and saying different things, there's a couple of points where they will cross over and agree on. So somewhere in the middle of these two different viewpoints is probably closer to the truth than either of the viewpoints put forward. Yeah. I'm not saying every time. I mean, sometimes in wrestling, you do just get barefaced liars, but it is, <laughs> it is what it is. Now with regards to the curtain call, we're, we're touching up on that because obviously when we get into the NWO in the middle of 96, Austin is now stone cold Steve Austin on the other channel. He doesn't get red hot for another God knows how many months, as as you can attest to, Danny, from doing uh, a change in attitude back with Magsy and Ori and, and, and Tanner and, and those guys looking at weekly WWE TV. Yeah. Again, revisionist history. WWE would have us believe Austin wins King of the Ring, cuts the 316 promo, boom, he's world champion. Doesn't happen like that. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> but again, that if Hall and Nash aren't leaving that night and the curtain call doesn't happen, and that guy doesn't have the camcorder there. The story is that Triple H wins King of the Ring in 96. We don't get that promo. Mm. Just another little, you know, adage to the the, the, the weird timeline of, of the mid-90s in wrestling, I feel, Danny. Yeah, absolutely. One thing could have changed the course of history forever. Mm. Exactly. With regards to the big money contracts WCW were throwing around, a couple of myths I want to kind of, I suppose, dispel as best I can, I guess. And again, people don't have to believe me, but this is just looking into things, my own research and so on. First of all, the term ATM Eric was thrown around a lot in the 90s, and he would just pay people extortionate amounts of money. And, you know, he had Ted Turner's credit card. Somebody once said in an interview I read, there's shoot interviews with mid-card WCW guys saying he could just spend Turner's money as much as he liked. And that's why WCW went out of business. That's not true. WCW had a budget. And Bischoff had to work within that budget. Bischoff, when he took control of WCW in the early 90s, basically spent the first couple of years trying to get under budget and save money. All house shows were cancelled because every time they went and put on a house show, they lost money. So he just cancelled them. He's like, why are we going out the door if it's costing us money to put on a show? We're not making cash. Mm. All house shows were cancelled. Many contracts were renegotiated or people were just allowed to leave. 
you know, the likes of Mark Miro is a good example at this point yeah. in time, 1995. He wanted more money. There was backstage arguments. He left. He, he was Johnny B. Bad and WCW. went across the, the WWF as Mark Miro for what he felt was better terms. Obviously, there were more backstage stuff going on with Miro as well, but that's just, you know, part and parcel of what it is. This whole ATM Eric thing is not true. No. Hulk Hogan's contract was separate. But in 96, WCW had a budget to spend. Bischoff did not go to Turner and ask for more money to sign Hall and Nash. He had to fit them into his current existing contracts and current existing budget. So there's that aspect to it, first of all, Danny. Yeah, absolutely. It makes more sense uh, coming from you than uh, you would hear from like uh, a dirt sheet or something like that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, second myth I want to kind of, I suppose, put to bed potentially is that these were the first guaranteed contracts in professional wrestling. That You hear that banded around quite a bit with regards to Hall and Nash and people saying, oh, WWF lost numerous talents. They lost Hall and Nash. They lost all the other guys that jumped ship to, to head over to WCW because they were getting guaranteed money. And that was the game changer, this guaranteed money. You know, that's not true. Yes, Hall and Nash were on guaranteed contracts. And yes, other people in WCW were on guaranteed contracts too. But they were on guaranteed contracts before Hall and Nash. And you could even go back to the likes of the Rock and Roll Express. They were on guaranteed contracts in the mid-80s, with mid-80s, late-80s, with Jim Crockett Promotions. You see, that's something I did not know. I actually did think that the um, guaranteed contracts came around for this. That's the narrative I really believed as well. I mean, if if you're talking, uh, the the comment that gets me is when people say they were offered the first guaranteed contracts in wrestling, which you do read, you do see, yeah. you do hear people say, right? Eric Bischoff was the guy who signed these guys. He was on a guaranteed contract for three years before this. <laughs> Yeah. The likes of Tony Schiavone, the likes of Larry Zabisco, all the people who were working as announcers and backstage and in the offices, they were on guaranteed contracts. Now, these weren't separate contracts. These weren't contracts with regards to Ted Turner's organization. These were contracts under the WCW banner. And these were contracts that were took into consideration for the WCW budget for that year. And very quickly, for people who don't understand how that sort of thing works, WCW would have a year's worth of finances, how much they've made, how much they project they're going to make for the following year, how much pay-per-view revenue is going to come in next year because of what they've put on the previous year. We spoke earlier on about pay-per-view buy rates and, and the money from pay-per-view sometimes taking quite a while to filter through to the company itself. So the budget would be set for the future 12 months on all of those figures. And that is what Bischoff would have to spend. And he spent years cost-cutting to be able to turn around and say, I want this, I want this, I want this. And then, of course, Ted Turner was the one who actually said, we're going live with Nitro. So that, again, more exposure. In theory, more money coming into the company. Sadly, not via advertising or anything like that, but that's a different show. But yeah, yeah the, the, the budget was set. So guaranteed contracts have been around in WCW for numerous years. Guaranteed contracts have also been around in wrestling itself. I mean, that we're talking there about non-wrestling entities, I suppose. Shivani, Bischoff, Zabisco, and so on. Like I said, the Rock and Roll Express were on guaranteed contracts 
years ago before this. You know, you could probably go, what are we on, 96? You could probably go back eight, nine years, and the Rock and Roll Express were on guaranteed contracts already. Yeah. And they're just one example. So a little bit of a myth there, Danny, I think. Absolutely, mate. That's good to know. Lastly, and we're here now, it's the 27th of May, National Hall have signed. They've worked their notice. They've left with a curtain call, which inadvertently has caused Austin to win King of the Ring on the other channel and so on. Lastly, we have the myth of the Monday Nitro on May 27th. Now, Danny, we know from Nitro Nights going by week by week that on May 27th, first of all, is Eric Bischoff's birthday. Secondly, um, it's the Nitro edition where Scott Hall arrives. He famously walks through the crowd in his double denim outfit and so on. But also, it's the first Nitro to go two hours. Yeah, it was, wasn't it? That we uh, yes, we clicked on. Yeah, I think I think we had a ninety-minute special or something like that it's the week before. But, yeah, yeah. But this is the first nitro to be officially going two hours, and the plan was then for it to go two hours this week and onwards. Yeah, this wasn't a one-off or anything like that. So there is a big online uh, a story, I guess, from certain people saying that Bischoff went to Ted Turner directly. Which, first of all, is laughable in itself. Ted Turner's a billionaire in charge of this huge company. Uh, the idea of Bischoff just rocking up in his office and going, hey, Ted, can we have a chat? It didn't work <laughs> that way. But Bischoff apparently went to Ted Turner directly and said, I've just signed Scott Hall. I've got this brilliant idea for this invasion storyline. Can we go two hours on that night? And, and Ted Turner going, sounds great, Eric. Let's do it. Doesn't work that way. Yeah. You need to take into consideration the likes of uh, network plans, for example. I mean, if, if Nitro goes from one hour to two hours, it's not like <laughs> the previous week Nitro was on air for one hour and then it was dead air for the next 60 minutes. There was other shows on the network yeah. which would have to be moved around. And the, they, these other shows would have advertising plot planned into the programs as well nitro would have its own advertising deals that would have to be tinkered with when they go two hours um for example if a show followed monday nitro and it had a particular sponsorship or advertising deal with a particular company that company is paying money because of that time slot on the tv station if nitro yeah. takes over that time slot that's a lot of contractual back and forth with regards to the advertising alone never mind where this other show was going to be aired if exactly. they were showing yeah, if they were showing a rerun of an old movie, not so much a pressing issue. But there's lots going on there with regards to the, the legalities of advertising and sponsorships and just general TV slots and so on that all these different moving parts for a TV company would have to take into consideration, Danny. Absolutely, mate. I mean, something like this would take months and months to approve, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, it would take. I've done about months and months and months, but it would take. It would take quite a while to sort yeah. out. Um, so that's the last, I suppose, you know, common fabrication that hopefully we've eradicated. There. I mean, ultimately, people can believe what they want, and they may read stories that tell them that that is true. I'm just putting forward my own personal belief from what I've researched myself. Yeah, and I think that's the the key to do because, um, as you said, uh, the idea of Eric Bischoff going to um, Ted Turner and just saying, "Oh, can I have this because we've got Scott Hall," it just it it, it just doesn't make sense. Mm, it doesn't. It doesn't at all. 
Now then, with regards to Hall's debut, we're here now. Here we are. This is May 27th. Scott Hall is arriving. With regards to Hall's debut, we then start getting into the questions of when was the NWO idea formatted? When did Bischoff know this is what he wanted to do with Hall and Nash? When did Bischoff know they needed a third man and who was that third man going to be? And all that sort of stuff. That's, you know, the contracts are done, the contracts are signed, they're ready to debut. We're now more looking more at, at this kind of story from the creative standpoint, I think, Danny, aren't we? Yeah, we really are. And more of the on-screen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, first of all, with regards to Scott Hall, according to Eric Bischoff himself, again, I'm, I'm quoting from Bischoff, so if this is inaccurate, then take it up with uh, Easy E himself, I guess. Hall knew he was debuting on the 27th of May but he didn't know what he was doing until Bischoff himself personally went and picked him up from the airport on that day. Oh. Apparently, again, according to Bischoff, he told Hall, don't worry about bringing any gear. You're not working, but have some decent street clothes. You're going to cut a promo. And then in the car, from picking him up from the airport and driving him to the arena, he told Scott Hall about his plans for this kind of invasion angle. Which I find fascinating. I do too. And it also saves um, possible leaks that might happen as well. Well, again, according to Bischoff, that was a huge motivation for him. Mm. Because he didn't trust his own booking team. <laughs> yeah. <Basically. laughs> and why would he? <laughs> uh, according to, to Bischoff, with regards to the booking team, and we were going to get into this a little bit closer to the actual Bash at the Beach pay for you itself, but we might as well you know, comment on it now. The booking team back then, or booking committee, as it was referred to, um, again, directly quoting Mr. Bischoff, he did not trust Greg Garnier at all. He didn't trust Mike Graham. And he said Terry Taylor was shady. He didn't trust Taylor either. So he said he could trust Kevin Sullivan, he hoped. But so much was getting leaked to Meltzer especially, but dirt sheets in general that he really wanted to keep this whole angle close to his chest. And, and the reason for that being is that everything was very cartoony in wrestling at this point in the WWF, very cartoony in WCW. Bischoff wanted a more reality-based product. He thought that the cartoony stuff is not working. The business, both sides of, of, of the divide, WWF, WCW, is in the toilet. Something needs to change. In Japan, there was a storyline where there was an invading faction going into New Japan, which, you know, Sonny Ono was involved, a good close friend of Eric Bischoff's and worked for WCW for a time. Bischoff says he wasn't inspired by that particularly for the NWO storyline, to make of that what you will. But he says that wasn't what inspired him. But the realism of it, the reality-based, you know, kind of content was what inspired him. It can't be reality-based if it's in a dirt sheet the week before. Exactly. So he didn't tell barely anybody that this was what was going to happen. The booking team apparently would have ideas for Hall and Nash when they came in. That they were just banding around. That Bischoff kind of had to go, oh yeah, yeah, we'll see. Because he knew deep down what he was going to do. I didn't want to tell them yet. Yeah. Which again, I find fascinating, Danny. Can you imagine being in that room and thinking up six months of content for this guy? (laughs) <laughs> and it just gets thrown to the wayside <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> uh, 
with regards to Scott Hall's actual debut, apparently it was Larry Zabisco who came up with the idea that Hall should come through the crowd because it adds a sense of realism to it. Zabisco said if he comes through the entrance way, comes through the usual the sort of stage entrance and leaves that way as well, any reality you're trying to get, any kind of real aspect to that moment is instantly gone. Any kind of believability is is wiped away straight away because he's walking in and out of the dressing room. And apparently Zabisco was the one who came up for the idea. Bischoff, you know, hasn't confirmed this. He said, but it's very possible because Zabisco was informed of it that day because he was going to be on commentary when it happened. Now, with regards to Scott Hall's famous promo, Danny, we both, you know, sung the praises of this moment on Nitro Nights a few weeks back when we got to it, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. It's iconic. The mauler completely maul his opponent, Steve Daw. Well, you know, Steve, Steve Daw was trying to get an offensive going. Wait a minute. But, but what the hell but is going what? on here? But the maul, well, he just got reversed right there. The mauler runs him down. What are you talking about? Look, look here. Well, What's what the hell? Wait a minute. Somebody give me a mic. I have no idea. Hey. Wait a minute. I can't believe it. I can't believe what I'm seeing. It's, you people. What's with him? You know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. Are we going to get security here? Where? is Billionaire Ted. Where is the Nacho Man? That punk can't even get in the building. Me, I go wherever I want, whenever I want. And where, oh where, is Scheme Gene. Cause I got a scoop for you. When that Ken doll look-alike, when that weatherman wannabe comes out here later tonight, I got a challenge for him, for billionaire Ted, for the Nacho Man, and for anybody else in uh, WCW. <laughs> hey, you want to go to war? You want a war? You're going to get one. Apparently, this was written primarily by Bischoff. Only an hour before the show, Hall had some input into it as well. But it was effectively, we're going to talk about an invasion. We're going to reference we, them, and you to put a divide in there without actually naming sides, which I think was a really clever, little subtle way of doing that. Yeah. And you also have to remember months, well, since the beginning of Nitro, um, Eric Bischoff has been punching up at the WWF and taking shots. And so why wouldn't he do something like this when he when he knows that people from WWF would be watching this? Well, 
you're spot on, mate. You're spot on. And it's funny you mentioned that. Well, effectively, that, that's, you know, we're on May 27th. That's what happens. Hall comes to the ring, cuts that famous promo, leaves through the crowd again. The only person in the ring, apparently, who was smartened up to this was the referee. The two guys wrestling were unaware, and the referee was just told when Scott Hall arrives, stop the match, get them out of the ring. I don't know how true that is. I've not heard from, uh, I think it was Mike Enos in the ring at the time, one of the Beverly brothers. Yeah. I can't find anything directly from them, but I, I read that. I think Tony Schiavone has mentioned that in an interview, potentially. Yeah, and they did look confused, both wrestlers, when uh, it was happening. I do remember when we watched it back, it was they kind of looked um, dumbfounded and they were doing a lot of pointing. Yes, exactly, exactly. So then Hall cuts this promo. The majority of the guys in the back didn't know. The booking committee themselves, a great deal of them didn't know. Um, Shivani and Zabisco were aware and the directors in the truck and the cameramen were aware because obviously they had to find the shots but they were told minutes before the show started to broadcast to keep this big secret to make it feel real and that's a term that we've used over and over again Danny isn't it on the show when it comes to anything to do with Hall and Nash it feels real doesn't it yeah and it, it just feels legitimate it's like this um there's stuff here that's happening on nitro but this is on another level mm. yes you're spot on mate you're absolutely spot on there you mentioned people in the wwf watching this and you're spot on mate you're spot on vince mcmahon um actually had a statement prepared from his lawyer and Vince um, read this statement or, or spoke about this on the episode of Monday Night Raw after Razor and Diesel were both you know, on Nitro. And he says that the people, Razor, Ramon and Diesel, no longer part of the WWF. Uh, they are currently participating in a ruse for the competition, pretending to portray former stars they once were. And then, of course, encouraging fans to ring the wwf superstar hotline to find out more so he's trying to nip in nip that whole invasion angle in the bud and also shilling the hotline at the same time <laughs> i love it but do you know what since you just told me that that blew my mind i'm actually gonna watch that raw uh, after we're done with this recording because wow i didn't know that vince there's always been a thing of vince that he's always been told like no sell things when things happen he's always like oh no selling it doesn't it hasn't happening but that wow that just blows my mind it's early june i want to say the third or the fourth of june 96 if you want to check it out yeah thank you mate i will go and watch that um because you never know there might be more uh shots fired as we've learned on nitro at this point i mean i haven't seen too much 1996 wbf but yeah, it would be interesting to see what else they did. This this is fantastic television. We spoke about it numerous times on the past few weeks of the show. Danny, how uh, as an overall, I suppose, look back over the, the last few weeks of Nitro Nights, looking at this television product, looking at the, the, the presentation of Hall and Nash, how do you feel it's been handled? And I suppose a big question is for me, looking at the weekly television and having the context of the whole scenario from when nitro started up to this point do you think they could have handled it any better is it, what are your thoughts in general with regards to the 
the sort of presentation of Hall and Nash, the outsiders at this point? I think there's always going to be um, things you can improve. We've gone through it, uh, like um, certain uh, scenes where uh, the outsiders are in the crowd. We would have done things differently involving Scott Steiner. Um, in terms of how it's being presented, I think they're doing a, a perfect job or near, as perfect as you can do because um, especially leading up to the pay-per-view, it's all to get you to buy that pay-per-view. It's, we're only seeing little bits of um, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash, but I feel like if this was done today, we, we would have Scott Hall and Kevin Nash already have three matches each at this point. <laughs> <laughs> everything is just blown up now. They're taking their time with this, and I love it. I mean, there's been there's been episodes of Nitro where we haven't even seen them because. Um, They've been kicked out of the building and there's always that mystery of Eric Bischoff. Uh, there's so many questions coming out of it as well. So, yeah, I'm absolutely loving it, mate. Now, you're speaking about shots fired, Danny. And the biggest one was when old Vinnie Mac got his lawyers involved and wrote to Scott Hall. The letter is readily available online. And what I'm going to do now, if, if you can all bear with me just a moment, because I think it's important we get the correct context of this. There's a lawsuit. The WWF are suing WCW via Scott Hall and all this sort of stuff with regards to what they are saying is the portrayal of WWF characters on WCW television. They're doing all they can to nip in the bud this uh, hinted at invasion storyline. Now, bear in mind, Right up until Bash at the Beach. So we're talking weeks of television here. There's there's numerous nitros. There's another pay-per-view involved where obviously Kevin Nash powerbombs Eric Bischoff. Nash and Hall are not named. They're not referred to as Razor or Diesel. Very carefully by WCW not to be named. Yeah. But their mannerisms are kind of of that ilk, aren't they? Yeah. Well, that's something I definitely noticed. Yes. So this led the WWF to, you know, contact them via legal documents, a legal letter sent to Scott Hall, who then took it to um, Turner legal department. So then eventually it filtered its way down to Bischoff and so on. And a great deal of this is trying to insinuate that Paul and Nash are portraying Diesel and Razor and that they are trying to make out WWF stars are invading WCW. And Vince is trying to nip that whole angle in the bud because I think deep down he knows it's gold. Yeah, you can definitely see it. If you bear with me, I will read you what I have here from the letter that was sent to Scott Hall. Yeah. This letter will serve to put you on notice of your deliberate infringement of Titan's intellectual property rights in connection with your appearance this past Monday on WCW's Nitro show. Having reviewed the tape of your appearance, the text of the various statements made by you during your appearance, and the explicit references to past and ongoing storylines of Titan Sports, which is the WWE holding company, it is obvious that you were attempting, by your appearance, to suggest to the consuming public that you and others from the WWF were now going to be appearing on Turner Networks in WCW programming as part of some interpromotional matches. The entire theme of the program Betrayed by WCW personnel afterwards was that WWF wrestlers 
were going to be wrestling WCW performers and that you were leading a group of WWF talent in that effort. This is, of course, completely false and was intended to confuse the viewing public. To further this attempt to mislead and confuse the public, because good old Vinnie Mac is thinking of the kids at home watching TV, to mislead and confuse the public, you stayed completely within the character portrayal of Razor Ramon, a registered trademark of Titan Sports, during your appearance on Nitro. Indeed, both you and WCW personnel never even mentioned the name you intend to wrestle under at WCW, choosing instead to tell the audience they know who you were. (laughs) (laughs) You were dressed like Razor Ramon and utilized the Hispanic accent given to you by Titan as part of the character portrayal. Titan, of course, has no objections whatsoever to you portraying a new or different character devised either by you or by WCW. Well, that's kind of them. But will vigorously exercise its rights in connection with your attempts to pawn off or suggest to the consuming public that your WCW appearances are in the character of Razor Ramon in their capacity as a WWF wrestler or as part of some inter-promotional matches involving WWF participation. Accordingly, this is to advise you that Titan has exercised its rights under the contract it had with you and will be withholding future payments from you until this matter is further clarified. Titan further reserves all rights it has to take any and all further action as may be appropriate. So, just for those who didn't quite pick up on that or didn't quite because there's a lot of legal jargon and it's a long long letter as well so let me try and just boil it down to the crux of it and, and and danny please shout out any questions if you have them of course the gist is we invented razor ramon as in the wwf we invented razor ramon we gave you an hispanic accent and now you're on somebody else's telly pretending to be the character we invented which is our intellectual property again it comes back to vince mcmahon changing people's names and owning gimmicks and so on which a lot of people complain about but that's the way it works and you're trying to mislead the public in saying that there's going to be inter-promotional matches between the two companies on wcw television uh until this stops until you know we get clarification this is going to change and you're going to you know let us know your uh your character and name that you're going to wrestle under in WCW and so on. Um, we are going to withhold any future money owed to you. So now we've spoken, uh, uh, you know, at that decent length earlier on on this podcast, Danny, about how even though Scott Hall is now a WCW employee, he will still be owed money for merchandise sales and pay per view buys, which take a while to filter through the different companies to the wrestlers themselves. Titan is saying they're going to withhold all of his pay-per-view money, all of his merchandise money, any appearances money outstanding. Basically, anything that he is contractually you know, ob- obligated to, to receive, the WWF are going to withhold from him until they find out what is going to happen with regards to this Razor Ramon, supposed Razor Ramon character on Nitro. Now, you add to that a future letter of intent by the WWF and their solicitors, lawyers, etc. They also, in addition to what Hall they've said, holding money back from Scott Hall, they also say they want, because because Nash and Hall are using WWF trademark gimmicks and WCW is making money out of this from Nitro, advertising, 
and then the Great American Bash pay-per-view, where they turn up to try and find out who Team WCW will be to face them on the next pay-per-view. So they've got pay-per-view buy rates because National Hall are going to be on the pay-per-view. The WWF are demanding all of the money made by WCW for those events. Vince McMahon grabbing every last penny he can. <laughs> yes, indeed. And this apparently, especially the lawsuit with regards to uh, Scott Hall and his portrayal of the supposed Razor Ramon character rumbled on for quite a while before eventually it was uh, settled by a big shot lawyer coming in, acting on behalf of WCW and Bischoff and Hall and WWF had to pay Scott Hall all the money he was owed. Now, I, I just it just blows my mind that it we get this from Vince and the WWF a lot with regards to their revisionist history for this time period. It's the, Oh, poor little me, mm. poor WWF. They're going to, they're trying to put us out of business. They're taking our ideas and using them against us. Danny, what, what are your thoughts really on, on that whole scenario there? The legal implications. I mean, you said yourself when we recorded the episode where Hall arrived, that he was doing the, the razor Ramon gimmick. So what are your thoughts in regards to him doing that and WWE's response? It's so so messy, this entire situation. Um, I do think Scott Hall is in the right. It, fair enough, he may have been poking the bear a little bit with that accent, but it's not like he can go... But to me, it seems like WWF wanted him to go dye his hair green change all his body type and wear different clothes but you can't really do that um it's, it's just like it's just such a mess um but i can definitely side with scott hall here because fair enough he was doing the accent um but that had been dropped after the uh great american bash i believe yeah the whole thing's a mess but yeah not right what wwe was doing especially when it comes to withholding money and then going after his uh future earnings is just very bad something else that gets me is i mean i'm not sure if you'll remember the, oh well of course you'll remember you're, you're far too young but scott hall joined the wwf in 1992 as razor among before that he was the diamond stud in wcw so i don't know if you've seen the diamond stud character in wcw danny I believe I think did you I think you may have mentioned it on um, chain wrestling, but I do remember a story that you did say about this. Okay, he was part of the Diamond Mine, which was yeah. a stable of wrestlers, and this is when DDP uh, Diamond Dallas Page was a manager, which didn't really work because Page is about six foot fucking five, and he made some of his wrestlers <laughs> look tiny. But anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> Page had his own stable of wrestlers he would manage. The Diamond Stud was one of them. And Scott Hall portrayed the diamond stud. Scott Hall walked in a certain way, moved in a certain way, and even had the sodding toothpick yeah. before going to the WWF. So, I mean, don't get me wrong, certain mannerisms of Razor were definitely used in WCW. The accent, Danny, you pointed out, and you're absolutely on the money with it, the accent did kind of soften a great deal after these letters arrived. Mm. Uh, but other aspects of the character, Hall had them before he went to the WWF, just under a different guise. Yeah. 
and it's that I, I do remember you mentioning that on chain wrestling and i was like oh wow but that's something i'm also going to be looking back on as well after we finish mm. yeah it's very it's very interesting um effectively because this was kind of I suppose the term would be gimmick infringement, using somebody else's intellectual property, somebody else's ideas, somebody else's character. Eric Bischoff, in meetings with the Turner legal department, basically was told, look, you're golden, you're covered, as long as you openly and clearly state they do not work for the WWF. This led to the Great American Bash pay-per-view, which we've covered in the archives, Danny. Everyone should go back and and check that out at Nitro Nights on all your podcast players and so on. This led to when National Hall arrive on the pay-per-view. Eric Bischoff has that moment, doesn't he, when he's interviewing them and quite oddly just openly asks them, do you work for the WWF? And Hall and Nash both just go, uh, no. And then they move on. Yeah. And that's all it took for them to cover their own asses. Crazy, isn't it? Yeah, that really is all that mess. Just um, sort of, uh, you, I could say Eric Bischoff was kind of out of character there when he asked that question before slipping back into the character and being the worried stuff, stuff announcer. Um, yeah, it, it's crazy that it only took like one question to each of them and to each of them to clearly answer no to just make it all go away. Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously it didn't all go away, go away, but... No. It did cover their asses with regards to a lot going forward. Now, yeah. so so basically, here's the scene we're up to now. National Hall have signed. The WWF are suing, but it looks like it's kind of been dealt with, even though it would rumble on in the background for quite a while. But uh, Bischoff, Nash, Hall, uh, and the WCW department itself, I guess, wouldn't have masses to do with the legality going forward unless they were told you can't do that anymore or whatever. They would kind of just get on with what they needed to do. The scene is set for Bash at the Beach, 1996. On screen, Hall and Nash are called, just before the pay-per-view, they're referenced as these outsiders by Mean Gene, which I think was the first time we heard that term, Danny, wasn't it? Did it come from Gene? Uh, No, I believe it came from... uh, You know what, actually, you're saying that, you're right, um, I'm thinking of something else with Larry Sabisco. Yeah, yeah, it came from Gene. Yeah. Okay. And... They want an opportunity to take on WCW guys as part of a hostile takeover. They're taking over the company, apparently. And the scene is set for a six-man tag. Three versus three. Bash at the Beach main event. And WCW has named its six top guys. Again, we're talking on screen here. It's six top guys who are going to be, ran, you know, three of those are going to be randomly drawn. The six, apparently, in storyline, has been decided upon by their win-loss record in the history of WCW and the history of Nitro. The three names drawn, as we all know now, are Sting, Lex Luger, and Randy Savage. And they will take on Hall and Nash, and their mystery third guy, Danny. Yeah. And this is when we start getting into, we're coming towards the end of, of what we're going to cover today because we're getting into Bash at the Beach and the third guy uh, story, I suppose. But yeah, this is this is kind of the crux of the situation and that famous moment at Bash at the Beach. What do you know, if anything, about the build-up to Bash at the Beach, the discussions for who was going to be the third man, what people had in mind, and so on? 
the only thing um, I know is because it's been repeated on a lot of podcasts and things like that is um, Dave Meltzer did not have a clue and he speculated uh, Mabel would be the third man, but also speculated, I believe, Davey Boy Smith and I think Bret Hart was the other option. But um, yeah, apart from that, yeah, really nothing. Yeah, yeah, you, you're pretty much spot on. Um, apparently Mabel was mentioned by Meltzer. I don't, <laughs> I don't think it was mentioned in as serious a tone as Bischoff and his buddy Conrad would have you believe on there. They, they do a lot of that for comedy effect. And I love the fact yeah. that they've got a t-shirt that says Mabel was the third man. And the proceeds of any of those t-shirts sold go to the family of Mabel. Because obviously he passed away many, mm-hmm. many years ago now. So I think that's a lovely touch by, by Conrad and Bischoff and so on. That's really good stuff. Yeah. Uh, Bret Hart apparently was never considered. Oh. According to Bischoff. Um, there was talk with Bischoff about him coming in in 96 because this leads to the whole 20-year deal with WWF that they then cannot honour going into Montreal and ends with a Montreal screw job and all that sort of stuff. Brett's contract was up around this time. Brett elected to stay with the WWF for the long term. He had a 20-year deal in front of him where he would earn X amount of money the first few years as a wrestler then he would go down to more like a part-time performer and earn a bit less. Eventually working as uh, someone training wrestlers or as an agent at the back end of his career where he'd earn a bit less again. That 20-year deal ultimately Vince had to go against because they couldn't afford it. Again, the company was in a lot of financial trouble. And that's when he kind of broke the contract agreement with Brett. Brett ends up negotiating with WCW and that led to the Montreal screw job. But again, that's a story for a different time. So Brett was getting spoken to by WCW but never really considered to be the third man. The Bulldog, I don't think, was even available at this time. I don't think he could even get out of his contract to to be considered. And again, according to Bischoff on his podcast and in interviews he's done for other podcasts and so on, the Bulldog was never really an option. It, it just didn't fit creatively, I think, Danny. Yeah, I could definitely see that. So it's, it's just um, a lot of speculation yeah yeah exactly and again i like that because it had everyone guessing everyone was guessing who's going to be the third man what's going on and the reason it had everyone guessing is we're well into the outsiders invasion aspect here they're not quite called the nwo yet but we're well into the outsiders invasion aspect on screen national hall are there the match is being set for bash at the beach they've turned up with bats on one occasion and and fought with wcw guys they've turned up They've been banned from the building and then turned up with tickets on an episode of Nitro, eating popcorn and stuff, which tickled me. Scott Hall is just a funny dude. <laughs> All these things have happened on screen. But behind the scenes, even as they're making these appearances on Nitro and building towards the Bash at the Beach pay-per-view, they still, as in Hall, Nash and Bischoff and everyone else involved, they don't even know who the third man's going to be yet. Yeah. It just is well played out, well written. It's insane. You know, the, the people are trying to guess who the third man is. Bischoff hasn't got it set in stone who he's going to pick as the third man yet. You know, it, it initially, again, according to Bischoff and according to Tony Schiavone backstage and all this sort of stuff, and I think Larry Zabisco, and I think you can find interviews with Kevin Sullivan as well, because he was head of the booking committee at this time, so he would have had interaction with Bischoff about this. 
apparently Sting was one of the main options. Sting was always a guy they spoke to. And Sting was excited about the possibility, but also a little nervous because if it didn't work out, where would it leave the Sting character? And that yeah. was kind of what they were going to go with, in theory, was was Sting turning on WCW. Because it, I suppose the nature of it, it has to be a big deal. It has to be a huge thing for this storyline to step into the next, the next level. So when you look down the WCW roster, Danny, what are your options, really, from a main event standpoint? Yeah, it's like, um, I was going over the roster earlier because it's, uh, leads to one of our questions we got on Twitter and I was just stumped. I was like, who would uh, we choose? And other than Sting, nothing else would make sense. And and Sting is pushing it as in terms of making sense. It's, yeah, it's, it's very, very hard. Yeah, I mean, again, you look at that, that, that main event match at Bash of the Beach itself. Luger has only just returned to the company. He only mm. even came back at the beginning of Nitro. I don't think Luger... Nash and Hall have this aura to them. They've got this kind of charisma. that They're, they're cool, end of the day, you know? I don't think Luger fits in with that. Yeah. Um, Savage... I, I don't... I don't know. Savage was an ex-WWF guy, so it would potentially work. But, I mean, again, that comes back to the whole methodology of the nwo and the invasion apparently it wasn't it was it was worked as being wwf guys invading but in other interviews bischoff sullivan and the like have all spoken about how it's not a wwf invasion it's two guys who used to work here under the guises of vinnie vegas and the diamond stud who were mistreated went elsewhere and now they're coming back pissed off wanting a war. Yeah. That was that was what first was in Bischoff's mind before the whole WWF invasion, outsiders taking over thing kind of ran away with it. So that doesn't really fit with Savage either, because he wasn't XWW, but he was XWWF, so it does kind of fit with the other sort of common mindset of the WWF invasion, I guess, Danny. It's tricky, isn't it? If you, if you take Sting out of the equation, you're not left with much, are you? No, not at all. No. Hmm. Uh, eventually, Bischoff receives a phone call from our friend Hulk Hogan. Hogan's not been seen on television for numerous weeks. Um, it was a period in WWE. We quite enjoyed Danny, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sadly, it's coming to an end. <laughs> yeah, there we go. But apparently Bischoff received this call from Hogan. Hogan was away filming Santa with Muscles. Have you seen Santa with Muscles, Danny? I have. It's definitely one of my favourite Christmas movies I watch every year. <laughs> I think I've seen it once back when it first came out. I'm not inspired to ever watch it again, to be honest. Bonus shows, I may be one day. <laughs> Uh, on Christmas 2023, we will do Santa with Muscles. How's that? Yes, man? I'll mark it down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the excitement in your voice. I love it. Um, Hogan was asking Bischoff to come out and meet with him. And uh, Bischoff knew straight away that this was going to be a big deal because why didn't he just talk to him over the phone? Hogan can't get away from the film set. So Bischoff flies out to, I think it was Miami. A lot of the film was filmed in. 
he flies out to Miami and meets Hogan in his trailer. When he arrives in the trailer, there's buckets of cold beer on ice, apparently, Bischoff explains, and cigars dotted around for them to, you know, consume. Apparently, Jimmy Hart had been sending Hogan tapes of Nitro, and Hogan was watching them in between filming scenes in his trailer, loving what he was seeing, and according to Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, they believe that Hogan could see how big this Invaders, Outsiders storyline was, and I think it's Nash who tells the story and says the line, he could see that money train leaving and it wasn't going to depart the station without Hogan on it, brother. That makes sense. So, again, according to Mr. Bischoff, in various interviews, he's covered this numerous times all over the place, because I suppose he gets asked about this this angle all the time, doesn't he? He <laughs> Hogan sits down, they, they spark up a, a cigar each, they're drinking their beer. Hogan apparently turns to Bischoff and says, so who's the third man? Bischoff here kind of wanting to edge his bets, again, using Bischoff's you know, words. I'm ad-libbing a bit, I'm sort of paraphrasing a bit, but using Bischoff's words that I've, I've read and heard myself. Bischoff responds with, who do you think it should be? Bischoff knows he's got Sting in the back pocket. He's got Sting as the backup. But Hogan is kind of the guy he wants to do this role. So Bischoff says, who do you think it will be? And again, I don't know if this is done for dramatic effect by Bischoff. I don't know if this is accurate to the actual story. But uh, Hogan responded with, you're looking at him, brother. Mm. The fix is in. Mm. And there we go. There we go. And that was the plan from that moment on. Uh, We don't see Hogan again on television until the night of Bash at the Beach. When he walks out, it's a surprise. Because we don't even know he's there, do we, Danny? No, and that's something I wrote down. Um, he a few weeks ago on Nitro, he was advertised as making his return to WWE at uh, WWE Hog Wild. So him showing up a month early just made it even more of a surprise. Now you look at it in hindsight, you're like, oh wow, he wasn't even advertised. Which we knew he wasn't advertised, but it just is like he wasn't supposed to be here for another month. It just makes it insane. Yeah, and again, I, it comes back to, I think, the fact that we're watching the weekly TV in order, you know, every week and so on. So we've got the complete context of what's going on, I guess. Yeah. You look at the the WWE history, the documentaries online, and or, or even just go and look at great moments on YouTube or whatever. You know, the, these, these you know, countdowns of great moments in WWE, etc. Et you've got no context to Hogan not being there. Mm, exactly and that's something what we've uh, both learned when watching this is like oh wow he's actually supposed to just return in august but here he is rocking up in july yeah so it's a complete surprise to everybody now i mean we'll get on to that in a moment how much of a surprise it was to certain people but effectively then bischoff thinks he's got hogan locked in but he had doubts until the day of the pay-per-view until he saw hogan at the arena himself he still had doubts and had a backup plan in mind with regards to Sting turning on Team WCW still. So the day of the show, the day of the NWO forming, Bischoff was still unsure about whether Hogan was going to go through with it or not, Danny. I don't know about you. Yeah. That blows my mind. That does. It's like, uh, 
you've invested all this money, all this build-up, and Hulk Hogan wasn't confirmed until just very shortly before the pay-per-view. And even on the day, as you said, on the day of the pay-per-view, he's still like, is he going to do it or isn't he going to do it? And it's just like, wow, that it's, it's a risk. It's a massive mm. risk. Yeah, I suppose from Hogan's standpoint, Hogan's told Bischoff in advance, yeah, I'm doing it. I'm a fair man. So from Hogan's standpoint, you know, he's agreed to it. It is what it is. But Bischoff is thinking, okay, what if he just changes his mind? And again, we come back to Hogan's wife. She was dead against this, apparently. There's reports online and interviews online where Hogan's wife was dead against him turning heel. She did not want this to happen. Um, His attorney was against it as well. When he, for some reason, he, you know, he was talking to his attorney. His attorney didn't like the idea. Jimmy Hart was against it. Same thing of your legacy and so on. And again, the guy's name is somebody who I've never heard of uh, properly until I've looked into this kind of scenario when I've done podcasts, including this one and others in the past. Peter Young, who was Hogan's agent with regards to, you know, Suburban Commando and Santa with Muscles. And all the films he was getting, TV opportunities, Thunder and Paradise, and all that sort of stuff. Peter Young apparently would cry about this to Hogan. Wow. Would, would openly <laughs> weep, saying you're throwing away all the work that we've put in, because you're becoming the bad guy. That's insane. It's This Peter Young clearly doesn't understand about wrestling uh, storylines. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think that's easy to say now. Mm. In hindsight, but I think if you put yourself in that situation in 1996, yeah, Hogan, Hogan's the golden goose for so many years. Yeah, like we said earlier on, the the Hulkamania, the the red and the yellow, the All American Hero, it's got stale. It's a bit boring. It is what it is. But to these people that are around Hogan, he is the golden goose. His T-shirt sales, his his potential with advertising and sponsors. Uh, and all this sort of stuff is based upon him being a hero to the children. All the income that these people have benefited from his wife, his attorney, his agent, and so on. That's all on shaky ground now, because nobody really knows how this is going to go, do they? No, as you say that, it's like, yeah, now I can see why they, um, because yeah, there is no certain answer to where this Mm. might fail. This might blow up in their face. This might be something that the fans just boo and just be like, nah, this is rubbish. And then, yeah, it, it could go anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. Now, with regards to the the night itself, Bash at the Beach, the pay-per-view there, um, Kevin Sullivan was in charge of getting Hogan to the building. And this comes into the fact that it's a surprise Hogan is there again. Because Sullivan had Hogan stay at his house the night before the pay-per-view. And this was done twofold, apparently, according to Sullivan on his podcast and in interviews he has done for various websites. One was to go through the aspects of the match. Because Sullivan was was the booker and so on. Uh, Eric Bischoff apparently would explain the story and how he saw the finish in his head. But not being a wrestling guy exactly at that point he would leave people like Sullivan and so on to go through the actual context of the match and how they would get to what Bischoff sees as the final picture. Mm. The second point 
for Sullivan having Hogan at his house was so that no one could get to him and change his mind the night before the pay-per-view. Because Hogan was nervous. You know, Hogan has said himself, and, and Bischoff has said, and Jimmy Hart, people close to him, also Hogan was very nervous about his decision. So I think it would have been easy for some of these people that we've discussed to change his mind. Sullivan kept him in his house under lock and key the night before the pay-per-view and then didn't arrive at the arena until the second match of the night was underway. A couple of reasons. One, no one can get to Hogan backstage and try and change his mind. And secondly, no one sees Hogan arrive. All the fans who are attending the event, they're already in the arena in their seats. So Hogan is almost sneaked into the building, I guess, Danny. Yeah, it's that is brilliant. I did not know about Kevin Sullivan, um, basically keeping Hulk Hogan not as a prisoner, <laughs> as you say, lock, <laughs> under lock and key. But I can just imagine Hulk Hogan banging the doors and saying, "Get me out, get me out." But no, that that is that's just blowing my mind as well, and it makes total sense. Um, yeah, that's just, yeah, incredible, mate. Incredible. Mm. <laughs> Apparently, they watched sports, had a couple of beers and a couple of steaks, and then talked a bit of wrestling the night before. So, <laughs> there you go. There you go. I guess that would make sense as to why, um, yeah, why Kevin Sullivan's been booked on the pay per view as well. Yeah, potentially. Potentially. Um, mm. I, again, he's he's part of the booking committee and so on. Well, he's head of the booking committee at this point, I believe. So oh, yeah. he would have been around anyway, I would think. But yeah, I see what you mean. He's working the, working the same night as well. Uh, the, the incident happens then, shall we say. Nobody knows this is going to happen apart from a select few people. The booking committee uh, are still not informed other than Sullivan. I don't know if Sullivan then passed the message on, but those guys I listed earlier, Greg Gagne, Mike Graham, Terry Taylor, and so on, apparently they're not informed of this happening, you know, up, up until this moment. Some people were told a few days before or up to a week before. So Hall and Nash were told a week before, but they were also told it might be Sting. We don't know yet. Because again, the, the third man wasn't their decision. Hall and Nash apparently didn't really make any suggestions as to who the third man should be. They just went along with what Bischoff wanted to do. So they were still unsure as to whether it would be Hogan or Sting. I mean, by the, you know, a week beforehand, they were told Hogan and they just took it as, as that. But, you know, there yeah. must still be doubts and Sting was still the backup, apparently, on the night. Now, the instant happens. Hogan comes storming out to the ring. Luger has been eliminated, and we covered this on the show. So please, yeah. uh, the, the same day this bonus episode, uh, looking at the creation of the NWO, comes out, please go check out our Bash at the Beach 96 review uh, on, on, on the same podcast stream as well. It came out the same day as this particular show. Hogan comes out, drops the leg. We've all seen it a million and one times, and we spoke about it on the show already for, for our Bash at the Beach review. But then we get that promo. And what fascinates me, Danny, is again, how often in this story we've come down to coincidences, mm. timing being right, little moments falling into place completely by chance. This promo, to me, is one of the most important moments in the history of wrestling. Hogan turning heel, dropping the leg on Savage, 
and siding with the outsiders as being the third man, as big a shock as it was, if this promo is a miss, then everything that's just happened doesn't have the same effect. Yeah. It's amazing. The moment is amazing in itself, but to me, the promo is is what makes this so huge. The vision of all the rubbish being thrown in the ring, Mean Gene telling him not to touch him, he's got a fleet of lawyers and all this sort of stuff. But then Hogan cuts that promo, and oh my God, what a promo. What are your thoughts on on this promo and basically how important it was to the whole situation? It's just... There's no words you can use to just get how big this was. I mean, it was massive. Um, we, me and you uh, discussed this uh, a couple of weeks ago, Star, is uh, the WWE uh, DVDs have scrapped out Bobby Heenan's um, uh, what's, whose side is he online? And that is yes. something I wanted to say for this episode. Um I remember you just saying you, you blew your mind. You'd never seen that before. But that was the first version I ever saw because the first uh, WWE um, I saw was from WWE. But what are your thoughts on that side? Like WWE just scrapping Bobby Heenan's whose side is he online? Well, I, I didn't know it happened. And again, it, it's you bringing it to my attention. I had no idea because I've seen you know VHS tape footage and all this of this moment and, and the history of it and, and all that. And the big thing for me was always the argument, oh, Bobby Heenan, did he ruin the moment by saying, mm. oh, everyone's going, here comes Hogan, oh, here comes Hogan. And and Heenan goes, but whose side is he on? And, you know, for you know, transparency for everyone, Bischoff states there was no heat on Heenan for this. And, you know, to be honest, Heenan has spent decades calling out Hogan, t- calling him a liar, a coward, etc. It was just part of his character anyway. I don't think it takes away from the moment at all, but that's my own personal opinion. But I always just, that was just part of this historic moment for me. I had no reason to ever think anything different. It was just part of it, you know? The same as WrestleMania 14, the Austin era has begun. It's just what I envisage envisage in my head when I think of that moment. It's literally this week you told me that they changed it on DVDs. And I'm amazed, honestly. It's, It's insane. I have no idea why that change was made, but... It's like, it, 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 don't want to say it ruins it, but it definitely takes a lot away from it. Um, because the first time I heard the Bobby Heenan line in it, I think that was from another DVD. And I just remember even just keeping that in my mind. It was like, why would they do that? And then if they're doing that to this, what else are they editing? And as we've learned from watching Nitro Nights, going back and watching all the Nitros, they've edited a lot of stuff. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, the promo itself, Bischoff had a big hand in this. But Bischoff would have a big hand in a lot of what Hogan would say on television. And Hogan doesn't like working from a script. He doesn't like being told what to say. He would get certain people around him giving him ideas. And then Hogan would like to effectively improv his promo. Uh, and Bischoff apparently gave him the line of, you know, this is the new world order of wrestling. And that only popped into Bischoff's head when he was running through the promo a couple of hours beforehand with Hogan. The show had already started. 
Hogan didn't arrive till the second match. And it wasn't until Bischoff and Hogan were talking about what he was going to say that the actual name, New World Order, popped in Bischoff's head. And he said, make sure you say that. Mm. Aside from that, it was a couple of bullet points. And Hogan was just to go out there and talk. People criticize Hogan, and rightfully so, for his ranty, crazy, over-the-top promos. People criticize Hogan for his 1980s WWF stuff, you know, again, with the Warrior, the Legion of Doom, and all these other guys, where it looks like they're just off their box on cocaine, screaming at the camera. And, and again, rightfully so. But here, the fact that Hogan is just, like, like I said, improving this. He's got a couple of bullet points and the, the words New World Order to hit. And then he comes out with this promo. Man, if this had missed, I think we're looking at a different situation altogether. But this promo, you know, I, I, I used to do all this work for the kids. I used to do all the charity work. You fans can stick it. And all this sort of, oh, my goodness. It's and, uh, gold. Yeah. And and the crowd are just lapping this up. I mean, they're hating this. They're just shocked. They're appalled to the point where fans try to get in the ring. I mean, they're throwing trash in the ring, but one fan tries to actually get in the ring. I just want to know. I wish somebody would dig up that fan and just interview him and say, what convinced you to get up in that ring and get punched by um, Kevin Nash and kicked by Scott Hall? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, somebody has to find him. Yeah, I have a chat with him. <laughs> yeah, but it's just, it, it just shows you the power of that moment. It was like, um, the fans were so pissed off that Hulk Hogan did that to them that it it just something, I don't think it can be replicated. I really don't. I don't. And again, I think it comes down to timing as well, Danny. The fact mm. that, I, I mean, that, that that's effectively where we're going to leave our look at the NWO for now. We said we're going to talk the creation of the NWO. We've hit Bash at the Beach. We've covered the promo. That's effectively where we're going to leave that. But to summarise, I guess, before we move on to uh, listeners' questions off Twitter and, and other things like that, the timing of everything here, National Hall being really important to the WWF, both coming over at the same time in the way they did, Hogan you know, not turning heel the previous year and then deciding himself, okay, I quite fancy that. Just everything about it, the whole way it all came together perfectly. It was literally that. It was a perfect storm. Yeah. I think if one or two of those things didn't quite sync up the way they did, timeline-wise, whether it was a coincidence, whether it was intent, whether it was just sheer bloody luck, I don't think we get what we get with the NWO. And... We going forward on Nitro Nights, we're going to see obviously a lot more of the NWO and a lot more people in the NWO. But um, covering from that first conversation in '95, where Bischoff went to Hogan's house, up to here, mid '96, when Hogan turns heel and they've got Nash, they've got Hall. The fact that Scott Hall wasn't allowed to go and bump his money up by working a few dates in Japan, the fact that Kevin Nash had a kid on the way and his contract was up at the same time and he wanted to reduce his schedule. All of that just coming together the way it did in this timeline, building to this moment, 
and then that promo by Hogan. Again, I'll come back to it. if he messed that up, if he hadn't said things the way he did. And it, to me, it's a kind of worked shoot promo. Because Hogan was upset that people were booing him. Hogan wasn't happy that he was getting negative responses from the fans and, and all this sort of stuff. And some of the stuff he says in that promo, I genuinely believe Hulk Hogan meant. And the whole realism of it. And you say that this couldn't happen today. You are 100% correct. Because the internet was virtually non-existent in 96. Twitter, chat rooms, dirt sheets, online websites, writing rumors and ideas, and sometimes just downright lies, ringside news were <laughs> looking at you. You know, and all this sort of stuff. It wouldn't happen now. Somebody would leak it. Somebody would find out what's going on. Somebody would spot someone at the airport. Exactly. It's just an absolute perfect storm with regards to all these different timelines and moments in history that drop on that night in 1996 at Bash at the Beach. Absolutely. And and we're off to the races. And and that's the formation of the NWO. Um, Hopefully, Danny and I covered everything that people want to hear if i have anything incorrect please don't hesitate to tweet danny i'm not interested um no i'm joking, <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> if i have anything incorrect please don't hesitate to tweet the show at nitro underscore nights uh I, i'm you know it's very possible my research you know, i've got something wrong please tell me if i have um but yeah hopefully we've covered enough there to sort of open people's eyes to how important a lot of this is because what the wwf do going forward is directly influenced by what WCW are doing here. So there's, a, you know, it's it's the beginning of a really big, exciting, important time in the history of professional wrestling, Danny. Yeah, absolutely, mate. You've said it very, very well. Okay, to Twitter, we asked people to if they had any questions, thoughts, memories, etc., with regards to the formation of the NWO that night at Bash at the Beach, and so on. Um, first of all, at WCW Breakdown on Twitter. They've asked us quite an interesting question here, which we will come to in the future because we're looking at the formation of the NWO here and the question they've sent us, uh, you know, is very much about later dates and later years in the NWO. So we'll come back to that one. But go and check at WW Breakdown, a follow on Twitter. Fantastic account. Really enjoy the stuff they share. Dan Griffin on Twitter at Dan Griffin 21. He says, excluding Hogan, Sting and Mabel, (laughs) Who would you have picked to be the third man? And we kind of covered that during the show, Danny, didn't we? There's not many options, is there? No, there's not um, many options. I did scour the web, uh, the roster at the time, and the only person I could say for comedic effect was Glacier. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, excited you, about that. you're excited about Glacier's debut, aren't you? I am, yeah. I'm wondering how they're going to debut him now. So, um, yeah, how about you, mate? Who would you choose? I I don't think... If you're taking Hogan and Sting out of the equation, I don't think there really is anyone in WCW that could fill that role. Yeah. I don't think there is. Um, we, we explained why Luger probably wouldn't have worked. Savage, I, just, I can't put my finger on it, but it just wouldn't have been a good fit. Obviously, he joins the NWO in in future months, but I just, yeah, I just don't get. It. I mean, I suppose you've got DDP there, but he's not quite a big enough star yet to have the impact that Hogan or Sting would have. So I suppose you're then looking outside the company, and who's available? 
And the only person they could have spoken to with regards to the possible negotiations with their contract and so on. I don't know if the dates line up exactly, but you're looking at a Bret Hart, aren't you? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say Bret as well. But I mean, it's just so. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's crazy to think there's just no one on that roster that could have filled that um, mm. position. I mean, a name we've not mentioned at all on the show that I suppose is very prominent in WCW history is, of course, Ric Flair. Flair as the head of the Horseman, fantastic. Flair in the NWO, never would have worked. Absolutely. Because the NWO are literally that new world order. Flair's been around WCW for a long time. And even at this stage in 96, people were saying he was too old. So Flair wouldn't have worked. We've covered Luger. Mabel's just nonsense. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there isn't masses there. Is there? No, I mean, the ones that did come to possibly answer in this were Kevin Sullivan and Ric Flair. But when I looked deeper into it, I was like, no, it wouldn't make sense because both of them are cutting promos. Um, well, Kevin Sullivan's cutting promos against um, the Invaders and Ric Flair's just the ultimate heel. So why would, why would he heel on his own group to join another heel group? I don't get it. Well, yeah. Yeah, I just don't, I think, with the age of the likes of Sullivan and Flair, it wouldn't have worked. Mm. I mean, granted, Hogan is not exactly a spring chicken at 96, don't get me wrong, but I think the shock value of Hogan worked. Flair's turned heel, babyface, whatever. Sullivan, I don't think is a big enough deal. I think if you've not got Hogan or Sting, you've got to look outside the company and you've got to look at a Bret Hart. Yeah. If contracts are not an issue, which of course they always are, but if contracts are not an issue... Shawn Michaels would have been interesting. Oh, yeah. Now you say that, that would have been brilliant. He's part of the new generation in WWF. He's young, in ring. He's superb at this point in his career. But I I don't know, the idea of seeing Brett stood there cutting a promo with Nash and Hall either side of him. That image, to me, looks better than if it was Shawn Michaels. Mm. Yeah. That's a personal thing. That's a personal thing. Yeah. Uh, Steve-O, our good buddy at Total Steve-O on Twitter. He says, I will always ask this, and ironically, thanks to you guys, I'm now understanding. But if the NWO never happened, does WWE go under with its gimmicky nonsense and with WWE producing a better, more real product? Is that the company that comes out on top? Now, obviously, this is all hypothetical situations. We can never know for sure and so on. But if the NWO doesn't happen, I don't think we get the likes of DX or anything like that responding to the NWO and DX were a big part of the formation of the Attitude Era. I I suppose it comes under if the NWO never happened. Hall and Nash leaving, as we've covered in the show, led to the curtain call, which in apparently, as the folklore goes, led to Triple H being punished for the next God knows how long, which meant Steve Austin then won the King of the Ring in 96 rather than Triple H, who was you know, originally the winner you know, as they formatted their, 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 their year. Austin cuts that promo, builds up to be the Stone Cold character. So I suppose you could make an argument for that Hall and Nash, if they still leave and don't form the NWO, they're just I don't know, they go back and be Vinnie Vegas and the Diamond Stud or some shit, I don't know. <laughs> if they do that, 
but the curtain call still happens because they've left the WWF, Triple H would still be punished, I suppose, which would then lead to Austin being Austin still. But on the other side of the coin, how big was the King of the Ring win for Austin? The guy's a star and the Stone Cold character, I think, him cutting that 316 speech that night at the King of the Ring in 96 does not make Stone Cold Steve Austin. Mm. Despite what WWE will tell you. So is it really that big a deal? The curtain call happening and the knock on from that? Hmm. I don't know, Danny. What are you what do you think? I think it's this could be a show in its own, to be honest with you, this answer, because it's just fun to go through the timelines and say, uh, could this have happened if this didn't happen? Um, I do definitely agree with you when you say if the NWO doesn't happen, DX doesn't happen because there was no reason for um, like the factions in WWF. Um, they weren't a big thing until after WCW started doing them. And then in 1997, WWF started that whole, even like mid-carders and comedy acts, like the oddities had uh, factions and things like that. So I think, um, yeah, it's just one of them ones you're going to have to take a deep dive into. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's all hypothetical, isn't it? But yeah, we've said numerous times on Nitro Nights that Nitro and I suppose by association, Eric Bischoff, uh, uh, their, their fingerprints are all over the wrestling business. And you, you look into, you look at, put it in context. Nitro started September '95, ended in March 2001. So you're looking at five and a half years, Danny ish, if my yep. maths is right. So it's quite a small, tiny little segment of, of wrestling history. But Bischoff wanted a more reality-based show as opposed to the cartoony stuff and the wwf i think had to react to that as opposed to the nwo specifically so if the nwo doesn't happen i think we still get some form of a more reality-based wcw which then the wwe would still react to i think if the if i think if wcw are kicking WWE's arse in the ratings every week with the NWO or not WWE have no alternative but to change what they're doing and as they did in the real history effectively emulate what WCW are doing on the other channel the big issue is the NWO was a massive part of that reality based sort of kick that WCW went on which forced the WWF to then start changing their dynamic and not aiming at the kids with the cartoon gimmicks and aiming more for the 18 to 35 bracket that WCW were targeting as well. It's really interesting discussion. Really, what a question, Steve. That's fantastic. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I'm afraid as great a question as it is, I don't think we really answered it, Danny, but I'm not too sure (laughs) if we can. (laughs) Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. I think, I don't know. I, I think the NWO was so influential. If you take the NWO away, lots of things don't happen. But at the same time, I still think Austin happens. Mm. But even that, the Austin character, 
battling against the evil Mr. McMahon character was the biggest thing WWF television had. If WCW aren't kicking WWE's asses in the ratings every week and WWE aren't in the toilet financially, they can honor Bret Hart's contract. Montreal never happens. We don't get the Mr. McMahon character. Ooh, definitely. So then, so then you don't get the Mr. McMahon character. You don't get Austin being as effective going up against it. I, I, there's so much there to dive into. Maybe that's, again, I think you're right, Danny. That's a completely different podcast. We're going to have to do a deep dive into the hypotheticals in the future sometime. That's a brilliant question, Steve. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, mate. Rob at UTT Rob on Twitter, part of the awesome UTT podcast and UTT, uh, well, Unbooking the Tankatory podcast and so on. Go and check that out with Dan Griffin online. All your podcast players everywhere. Go and find them on Twitter as well. Uh, he says, and again, this is a question I suppose we can look at more in depth when we get to it in our watchback over the course of WCW. But Rob asks, if NWO 2000, consisting of Bret Hart, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Scott Steiner and Jeff Jarrett, hadn't all had massive injuries within two weeks of being formed, would they have been better than the original NWO? Now, we haven't hit that point in our watchback yet, so it's kind of difficult to put it into the same level of context as the original NWO, because we've watched the weekly television up to this point, haven't we, Danny? Yep. I will say, Bret Hart, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Scott Steiner, Jeff Jarrett, in comparison to just Hall, Nash and Hogan you'd have a better in-ring product with NWO 2000, with Bret Hart, Steiner and Jarrett being involved, as opposed to Hogan. But I don't know. I don't think they would have been better than the original just because of the impact they had. Yeah, I'm with you on that, mate. I think because 2000 was um, such a cluster um, and there was a lot of moving parts in 2000 i don't think i don't want to say the 90s 96 was any better uh by comparison but um yeah it would have been a, a difficult one because you're essentially asking if you take hulk hogan out of it would it have been better because and i don't think my personal opinion this this will might upset people but i don't think bret hart was a good fit for the nwo in 2000 at all or uh, okay. yeah, I just I I can't get into him as a heel. I love him as a face, but I know he did some amazing heel work in '97 and things like that. But uh, to me, he's, he's always been the, the ultimate good guy, and I don't think he matches up to Hulk Hogan in the NWO in uh, 2000. So I'm gonna have to say no on that. Mm. I, I think maybe that's a question we can revisit when we get to 2000 and we have the the, the weekly television, the context and, and everything about it. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, and WCW in 2000, there is some great television there, despite the rumours, well, the general feeling of, oh my God, it's a mess. There's some good stuff there. Um, oh yeah, definitely. I think if you're looking in-ring, NWO 2000 will always be superior if they don't get injured because of the names they've got to the original trio. With regards to impact, I, it's difficult to say because we don't get it in 2000 because of the injuries, but I think with regards to the impact in 96 of what happened, it, there's no comparison. 96 is is the bigger and better version, I think. But again, that's something we can revisit with a bit more context, Danny. Absolutely, mate. Uh, 
This is a great one here. This is a great one from our good buddy Cam at CamGriff92 on Twitter. If the NWO storyline were to happen with today's organizations, WWE Impact AEW, he's listed here, who would be the outsiders and which rival organization would they go to? And then following up on that, who would be the traitor stroke orange one? <laughs> that is brilliant. So I had a deep, uh, do you want to go first, mate? Or you No, if to... you've got one lined up, my friends, you dive on in. So I had to think about this. I had to look around all the uh, different rosters and of various companies. And I would have to say, I'll just have to say, I'll put Bully Ray as the orange one, uh, the leader of the <laughs> NWO. <laughs> the orange one, okay. And I would actually choose the Good Brothers from WWE, and they would all uh, jump ship to AEW and then do sort of an invasion storyline there because I'm, I'm a massive fan of invasion storylines. But yeah, I would have done something like that. Is your selection of Bully Ray in any way, shape, or form influenced by Aces and Eights? Oh, God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. I love Aces and Eights. They were great. And they what an entrance brilliant. theme as well. What a oh, banging yeah. entrance theme. Definitely. And we can we can just, I think it's common knowledge, they were just a direct ripoff of the NWO anyway. So, yeah, it yeah. all ties together. Influenced <laughs> by the Sons of Anarchy television program, yes. obviously. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Sharon and I, my wife Sharon and I, were watching uh, TNA Weekly Television then, um, massively invested in it. It was a great storyline, great storyline. Yeah. Um, for me personally, just off the top of my head, I'm thinking companies and wrestlers that I know about, I watch and so on. I don't watch a great deal of impact purely because there's just not enough hours in the day to fit it all in. But then again, I don't really watch AEW or WWE anymore at the moment either, but there we go. I would go just for the impact and the, just to see Twitter lose its shit and the whole wrestling internet have a mental breakdown. I would have invading WWE as the outsiders, Kenny Omega and the Young Bucks as the elite invading the WWE. Oh, that would set the internet ablaze, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then in the role of the great orange one, the traitor. I think you need someone who fits with the elite with regards to being able to put on great matches. I mean, what the Bucks and Omega do isn't for everybody, but there's a certain uh, style they have. And I'm not saying this individual has that particular style, but he's, he's one of my personal favorites in ring. And it has to be somebody who is basically WWE through and through or has been for the majority of his career to my knowledge. I would have joining Omega and the Bucks and turning on the WWE, Seth Rollins. Ooh. Yeah, I like that. So that that would be my choice. That would be my choice, but there we go. And finally, we have your other podcasting partner, Danny. At Real Chris Bellis on Twitter from the absolutely awesome One Man's Meat podcast. He asks... Has our episode, as in the One Man Meat episode, has our episode covering the NWO in WWE killed the enthusiasm for the NWO for Danny? <laughs> I'm going to have to say absolutely not, um, because we have had a blast talking about the NWO with you and Chris. And uh, last week I did it uh, 
two days in a row. So it was actually nice to see the contrast between the two um, different eras of the NWO. So no, it hasn't. Awesome stuff. Awesome stuff. Right, there we go then. There we go. I hope everyone's enjoyed this, I suppose, mammoth episode by our normal standards, checking out the formation of the NWO. Yes, mate? At the the beginning of this episode, you said... We are, I guarantee you, everyone, we are not going three hours. Um, would you like to tell the uh, people listening how long we've gone? <laughs> oh, the clock currently reads on our, on our recording software two hours, 27 minutes. So we're not yes. far off, I suppose. <laughs> I'm amazed my throat has held up this well. All I can say is, you know, fantastic glass of Vimto I have going that has soothed my throat. Other squashes and soft drinks are, of course, available. Um, unless Vimto want to sponsor us, in which case, fuck everyone else and buy Vimto. But there we go. Um, <laughs> I've had an absolute blast covering this. I've been looking forward to this episode for... Well, I've been looking forward to this episode since the idea first came up. And it's been fantastic. It's been fantastic doing this project for over a year with you, Danny. Looking at uh, WCW show by show. It's been brilliant looking at all the nitros, the pay-per-views and everything. And sitting down now and discussing this particular topic, looking at the behind the scenes stuff and the goings on and so on, doing the research for it and all that. I have had a blast. Thank you so, so much for joining me, Danny. No, thank you, mate. It's been fantastic just to uh, look back on this. And we're going to, this is going to be a future side project, this little NWO look back. So I'm really excited to see where we go uh, in the next couple of months. Yeah, it's that thing of every now and again we're gonna we're gonna do an additional part to this. So I don't know when the next one will pop up. Uh, listen to Nitro Nights every week to follow along to our usual format when we're discussing everything that's going on in WCW in those weeks and shows going forward. But yeah, there's always going to be another occasion where we discuss what's going on with the NWO in particular and anything going on contractually behind the scenes and so on. There's some interesting stuff coming up. So yes, we will be adding other parts to this NWO bonus content, I guess. Uh, Before we depart, I just want to say thank you to everybody who has supported Nitro Nights. Uh, what well, since we began everyone who's listened everyone who's bought merchandise everyone who's bought you know t-shirts hoodies whatever I, i'm amazed whenever i see pictures online of people in america wearing a nitro nights t-shirt you know we've had a sale somewhere really some really random obscure country in in that you know i think asia potentially was was where it's from maybe i, I don't know my geography is not a strong point but i see people tweeting images of you know I'm wearing this shirt today and all that and tagging us in it. It blows my mind that people support the show in that way. There will be a link for merchandise for all the shows merch in the description for this episode. So please go and check it out. The show and the network itself is literally funded by people buying merch. So I cannot express enough thanks to those who have done it. And to those who have been umming and ahhing, treat yourself, you know, you deserve it. But yes, I've loved doing this project with you, Danny. It's been fantastic. Me too, uh, mate. I want to just quickly ask everybody who has listened to this to check out the rest of Nitro Nights available on all your podcast players via the SJP World Media Network. Again, links are on all our social medias at Nitro underscore Nights on Facebook and Twitter. Retweet the shows. Tell all your friends. Share it in all your Facebook groups. You know, all over the place let's get as many people listening to this as we possibly can and again follow us online at nitro underscore nights danny before we go where can they follow you 
Well, you can find me on Twitter at Scottish Juggler. You can hear me on One Man's Meat Podcast with the great Chris Bellis. You can hear me on Back When with the great Ty Peters. And you can hear me here next week with the great Cy Powell, where we'll be looking at the end, the first Nitro of the NWO. There we go. There we go. And again, you can follow anything I'm involved in via the network that carries this show at SGP World Media. And follow the show itself at Nitro underscore Nights. Subscribe, like, uh, give us a big fat five star review on all your podcast players. Honestly, it may take you five seconds to do. It costs you nothing, but it means the world to us. So yeah, make sure you're doing all of that for us. Danny, here's to another year or so of this Absolutely. crazy wrestling company. Look back and some NWO awesomeness. Absolutely, mate. It's been a blast, my friend. I'll speak to you next week. Take care. And to everyone else, as always, thank you for listening. Thank you.